we got penalized because the game was late. Yeah. And then he blocked me. For, he, I was telling him, I'm producing this project, I guess. Yeah. I'm saying, we need more of this. We need we need help on this. What do you we mean need... by penalized? Like, is that something specific? Yeah, or... there was bonuses paid for projects being done on time. <laughs> and Civilization shipped like a month and a half late. And our bonuses were reduced like by 20 or 30 or 50. I don't remember the number now. But we got, we got less in our bonus because the game shipped late. Wow. And, and I've been asking for months for staff to get the game done on time. And wow. so I felt... I felt bitter. It made it easier for me to leave within a year. Sure. When yeah, I, yeah, I that's, when that's I gratitude. Boy. Hi, everybody. This is Soren Johnson, and you are listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today we are talking to veteran game designer Bruce Shelley. Bruce started his career making RPG and board games with Iron Crown and Avalon Hill. He switched to video games in 1988 when he joined Microprose and served as Sid Meier's assistant designer on Railroad Tycoon, Covert Action, and Civilization. Next, he joined Ensemble Studios and helped create the Age of Empires franchise. Bruce is currently working with Bonus XP on Servo, a new RTS. So where I usually start with, um, and I'm, I'm kind of maybe trying to think what's the best way to do it with you, uh, since you have a career that spans outside of video games, um, but what I often ask people is what's the fir- first video game they remember, um, mm. you know, the first one that really stood out to them. Um, but uh, I, I, for you, maybe I'll go back even further. Like, do you, What was your memory of games growing up? Mm. Is it something you connected with deeply when you were, when you were young? Yes, I, I, I played games as a kid. I remember... I remember uh, I look as a kid. I look forward to rainy days because kids could do had to do what I wanted to do, you know. Right. And that sounds like I'm you know, kind of an introverted kid, but I, you know, I, I I was very active in Boy Scouting and, and really appreciated that. And I went, I played sports at both the high school and the university level, so it wasn't like I was a nerd. Or, I mean, just a, a shut in. But I, I games really made my mind come alive like nothing else I was doing. An interesting game. I mean, I remember, I remember my cousins, my brothers. They get, we'd get these take-apart toys, you know, these wooden blocks take them apart, and they'd get frustrated and they'd give it to me, mm. and I'd be happy to spend a half hour trying to figure out how to put it back together again. I would, they would always end up in my hands trying to put it back together. So I, I just, there's something about the puzzles and the, and the idea of a game, I found that uh, just was, a, was the thing that most engaged my brain. I thought it was the most interesting thing I was doing. I remember as a child I was given a Civil War game, it was called Change It, the Battle of Gettysburg. I never saw it again. Right. But I never, I don't think I ever read the rule book. I made it my own rules. Yeah, right. These little pieces that a flag would march on the board, and at times you could you could turn the flag into four infantry units, a cavalry unit, and an artillery unit. And I, I just played with it. I didn't really read the rules, as I remember. I was pretty young, I think. And uh, it just, games were always something I was doing. Even when I was a college student. I mean, we would play Stratego in the fraternity house. You know, mm-hmm. I, I'd sometimes have to give away a couple pieces to get somebody to play me. But there was one or two guys who played me head up without a problem. I sure. would, there was one guy who beat me all the time. Was this during the days of the sort of the early Avalon Hill games? Yeah, I'm. I I lived in Baltimore, but and I saw the Avalon Hill games in stores. Right. But I didn't buy one until like like I think it was 1967. I was in Ocean City. For the we, my family would go to Ocean City or Delaware for the beach for a couple of weeks every summer, and I remember it was a rainy day. At the beach, we had nothing to do outside, and we walked into town, and I bought a game called 1914 from Avalon Hill. Very complicated, 
World War One simulation of the Western Front. And it was impossible to play practically, but I was intrigued. I mean, I just kept pushing the pieces around. I really liked history as a kid, or even today I still read a lot of history. And I thought what was cool about these games was I remember most of the, I remember the, it was a, the history books would have a map on the inside of the covers, the front right. and the back cover. And what these games were doing was taking that map off the book covers, putting it on my table, and the pieces were out, you know, representing all the different units. Right. And I got to redo the battle from the viewpoint of the commanders, usually. Sure. And I thought it was an incredibly interesting learning tool. I mean, it just made the story come alive, the book or the historical situation come alive for me. So I really got interested in that. So I started buying, you know, I, I would treat myself to an Avalon Hill game every six months or every year. I get another one. Sure. Yeah. And that was part of it. Did that, it's funny because I, I know I've heard Sid say the exact same thing about looking at some of those old books with the maps. And yeah, like Sid will tell you. I believe he'll tell you that he a lot of his games were making a map come alive. Right. I mean, a railroad game and a Civil War game were all. Uh, there was a illustrated book about the illustrated history, American Civil War illustrator or something like that. It had all these really cool looking dioramas with the men fighting the battle in a diorama situation. And his goal for the Civil War game was to make that map yep. come alive. Yeah. Interesting though is I mean certainly you have a war game background, Brian has a war game background. I loved war games when I was a kid. Although similarly, you know, often it was sort of an a, a, an ideal of maybe someday I would have someone to play these games with me with, right? But like Sid, I don't I don't feel like he really played war games. I don't really, you know. Somehow. I don't remember him saying that, but I know when I went to work at at Microprose, we started playing games, and mm-hmm. I know we played 1830, a railroad game that okay. I worked on at Avalon yep. Hill. We played a lot of that, and I think that was part of the inspiration for making Railroad Tycoon. Right. And we also, Avalon Hill had also published the board game called Civilization, sure. which was designed by a fellow in, in uh, Francis Tresham in Britain. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know we played that, and I'm sure that was part of the inspiration for the Civilization game. But sure. I don't remember him t- talking about playing war games. No, I don't remember that. But, yeah. but I think he, he was familiar with it because he had a subscription to Strategy and Tactics magazine. Okay. Yeah. And he would see him. I don't know if he ever played him, but he read. He was interested enough in that topic that he read that stuff. Yeah. So would you, when you, uh, in the, the early days when you started buying these games, did you actually have someone to play with? Or were you, was it mostly solitary? Like, would you actually try to play both sides or did you just I'd enjoy? I tried to play both sides. It okay. was a solitary experience. I played both sides. You just examined it. It was like just making the history of the maps come alive for sure. me. That was enough. You know, it was enough to keep me intrigued. Uh, and then um, I went to graduate school at the University of Virginia in the early 70s. And they had a very active game club there. They called the Historical Simulation Society. Mm-hmm. And there I actually played. There was a lot of people there. I mean, let's say a lot. But there was 40 or 50 people that came to a meeting on a typical Friday night. And um, I actually sat down and played Strategy and Tactics, War Games, Avalon Hill War Games. A D&D came along in that period. We, sure. there, was a, there was a classroom down the hall where the D&D game was going on. Right. And uh, so there's a lot. It was a very eclectic mix of games. And I was just jumped into, you know, I loved that night. Friday night, I look forward to Friday night and playing games with all the guys there. Is that the group that you eventually, was Tony Goodman in that? Tony Goodman and Rick Goodman were both in the game club at Virginia. Their dad, I believe, was on the faculty of the college at the time. And so they were teenagers. Yeah. And uh, but they were fine because it was the, the the game club was not about just just students. It was townspeople, faculty, right. everybody, graduate students. It was a quite eclectic mix of people there. Yeah. And years later, um, I mean, I remember teaching Tony and Rick how to play a game called Squad Leader from Avalon Hill. Right. And I and, I, and years later, Tony said, "Yeah, it was one of the well, it was a cool experience for my time in Charlottesville was playing games with you and uh, and and you teaching us that." He says one of the memories he has of me, and I don't know if I have this memory. He says, "I remember you were not just playing them." You sat there with a yellow pad and you were making notes 
about what you would change or something like that. <laughs> so so maybe I was. I think it was. The, uh, I remember there might have been one game. I, I was just really upset about it because it was unbalanced. Right. It was a it was a game from Game Design Workshop. It was a science space science game, and I, and there was one side that always could win. It just right. seemed like they hadn't finished figuring out how to make this game work. And I right. was, I wrote them a long letter about what they should do to make this game work properly. Yeah, I had the sense back then. A lot of the games I I you know read through the rules or tried out some where I felt like I just I, I couldn't imagine how many times they actually got a chance to play it. Especially when those game, the games just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and I feel like, like it seems like they're making experiences, not really games. You know? Yeah, I met a guy. I won't say any names, but he never played his games. <laughs> he designed these complicated games, but he never played them. Yeah, and that's me. Like that was like uh, one of my learning experiences along the way was the fact that when we when I worked at Avalon Hill, I mean, we tried to get everybody in the room to play your game, you know, daily, weekly, right? And so there was a lot of input that changed the way it worked. There were guys there who really liked playing games, so we did that. Uh, but this guy was, you know, I thought was, and I thought that was, I mean, I learned a lot about making games applied no matter what genre I was in, and that was basically to prototype early and play test regularly, you know, and play your game all the time. You know, I, I one of my one of my old one of my comments that I've used over the years is that I, I think a game designer is only guessing until he can actually play. Yeah, you you know, you don't really know until you try it, and uh, and and I think that that was true I think when we were making board games and I felt it was true when I worked at Microprose with Sid you know it was all about playtesting daily and redoing overnight and testing again the next day and and then we carried I carried that idea I kind of shoved it down the throat of the guys at Ensemble Studios that's how we should make games and that looking back I think that's how Blizzard makes games I think that's how Brian Reynolds makes games I mean it, the issue with that is um, you get to a good game if your instincts are right if you know what you're doing about playing a game which is great. The problem with that is it's unpredictable how long it's going to take you to get right. there. So publishers don't like that because they can't get a manage on the costs. Yeah. yeah. Now, so during this, this phase when you were at the University of Virginia, uh, were you, did you think game design is what you wanted to do? I mean, it sounds like you were already trying to sort of like design games in a sense, but like what did you, what did you think about that? I did think about it because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I was a graduate student in economics, and I decided I was not going to be a PhD in economics and be right. a professor. I, got, I mean, I did really fine in certain amounts of ca- calculus one and two. I mean, but then I got to the third level of calculus, and I just I was having a real difficulty with it. And I realized that economics at a high level was all math. You know, you right. read a paper, and it was no hardly any text. It was all these equations. And I said, well, I didn't really sign up for that. Anyway, so um, I toyed about how to how to get into the game industry, and um, it turned out we started a game company there at the, at the club. Okay. We started a company called Iron Crown Enterprises. Um, it was like half a dozen guys, but mostly it was Pete Fenlon and Coleman Charlton were two guys and some and several others. And we, we, we got the license. We had built They had built the long-running D&D campaign based on The Lord of the Rings. Okay. It was started by an Army major who was, te- who was teach, getting a master's in history before he went to West Point to teach. When he left, Pete Fenlon took it over as the game master, The Lord of the Rings, the role-playing game. So we talked. We actually got in touch with the Tolkien estate, and we got a lot. We thought we got the license to build role playing games based mm-hmm. on Lord of the Rings, and that became a company called Iron Crown Enterprises. And I, we, I worked there. I, that was sort of my first job. That's how I date my beginnings in the game industry in 1980 because I wrote some of the manuals and I wrote, I rewrote some of the. St- I did a lot of writing and stuff, which was all you're doing with a paper game, really. Right. And but that wasn't really what I want. I wasn't really an RPG game player. It wasn't really what I wanted to do. And. Uh, I'd, I'd applied for a job at SPI in New York City, 
and uh, I'd actually done some testing for them. They gave me a they gave me prototype games, and I tested them and wrote back. Some were based in the Civil War. Some were based in the Shenandoah Valley. I went over there and marched the battlefields myself, dug out the official records, told them you know I thought there's mistakes in their order battle and all this kind of stuff. So they they knew me when I applied for this job. They remembered me, and um, you know I, I thought you know before I got a real job, I would try to start the game industry if I had an opportunity. And uh, I got a chance to work in New York with SBI and uh, Park Avenue South. Now, let me back up one second and just <laughs> make sure I got the, the wording right here. You said they thought they had the Lord of the Rings license? Right, because 20 years later it turned out that they had never really owned it. It had been <laughs> owned by a, by a movie zog- mogul in California. Okay. And he sued them and the company went bankrupt. Oh, geez. Because wow. they had been paying the wrong person years okay. royalties for years wow and then somebody else says well that, you paid the wrong guy i'm the guy who actually owned that rights huh. now i'm not really sure the story there you'd sure. have to ask them but the, the point is something went wrong something yeah. went seriously wrong and the company just went wow. away i mean they also had issues with uh distributors who went bankrupt and owed them a lot of money so sure it, it was always a really a labor of love sure. it went on for 20 years and they had ups and downs, but, but they had some uh, some success with it. Yeah, they did. It was called MERPS, Middle Earth Role Playing System, yeah. and I still run the people who loved it. Yeah, and and, and they were very. Uh, I I was only there a year and a half or so. Right. But after long after I was gone, they were very inventive with maps and fit, you know if you look on the Lord of the Ring books, at least the original ones when I read back in the sixties, there was a lot of these empty spaces. Mm-hmm. It was big maps and empty space. Well, they yep. filled in all yeah, that space sure. yeah. Yeah. with people and characters and stories and adventures. Yeah. And they did it for twenty years. It was a it was a huge body of work. And, wow. uh, it's kind of actually. I mean, it's a sign of how times have changed. That you know, a tiny company that starts, to, you know, just a tiny startup like that could get the Lord of the Rings license for a role playing game back then. I mean, that's basically unthinkable now, right? It is. Like, but remember, this was like not very long after D and D become popular. Right, you know? like, right. It was only a year or two, or say several years, maybe two or three into the D and D popularity. So it was a great idea at the time, for sure. It was, and, and we had it. It was a lot of fun. I mean, I mean, I, uh, I just my main issue with role playing games was I sat around waiting for my turn to interact <laughs> with the design with the with the guy in charge, sure. whether the game master was a man or a woman. So there was a lot of dead time for yeah. me, you know. And then I rolled some dice and whether I'd kill or not. It just you know people. I just didn't. I found it more interesting. I was totally engaged. If I was one on one, refighting the Battle of the Solomon Sea on a board game with a friend. Yep. Whereas I was drifting in and out when I was doing a role playing game. Yeah. Well, I, I tend to. I think it might be a personality thing. I tend to have problems with games that don't really have an end. You know. Um, and I feel like a lot of strat- people who end up making strategy games have that feeling. You know, they want they want sort of a complete experience. And RPGs are by definition, yeah, open ended. Yeah, I mean, I, to me, I've always struggled with the idea: is this really a game? This RPG right. <laughs> thing, you know? Because like I, one of the things that uh, over the years I get asked quite a bit, you know, well, interviewed and things: what is a game? What's the definition of a game? And so I'm trying to figure: does an RPG fit into my definition of what a game is? Yeah, I, I think it does. I, I think my definition is faulty, but I think it is definitely a game. But yeah. it attracts a different audience, and it's a, it's a more, it's really a social yeah. event. It's hard to come up with a definition of game that someone isn't going to be able to point out a game that you clearly think is a game that does no, doesn't actually fit under your definition, right. um, which is, I think, a sign of just how you know, interesting a hobby gaming is in general. Yeah, I met a sociologist, a sociology professor from France once, and he gave a presentation about the origins of games. You know, he talked about cavemen, mm-hmm. let's say cavemen, or prehistoric people playing games, passing around a hot stick, and the last guy to hold it gets burned. Or, you know, what was the first game ever made? And, and I asked him, "What is your? Do you have a really good definition of what a game?" He says, "No, I don't." Right. Well, here's a guy who made a living, <laughs> yeah. basically, and he didn't have a good definition. I mean, you can find definitions everywhere, yeah. but one that covers everything and does it succinctly and briefly in one sentence—that's yeah. hard. 
Yeah, for sure. Okay, so now you're at your SBI, um, and really, I guess I guess you could say at that point, like as soon as you thought that you could work on games, you kind of went for it. I did. I mean, it was it was what happened. It was a strange situation because the guy who offered me the job got fired like a month before I was supposed to show up. So the the job essentially went away. But they called me anyway, and they said, "Look, we can't offer you that job anymore. The company's not doing great. But we can offer you an internship for three months. You know, you can come and work for us for three months for a minimal salary." And I said, yeah, this is when I made a decision. I want to, I want to give this a shot, you know. And uh, so I did. I went to New York. I lived with a fraternity brother in the Bronx and commuted, took a train downtown to South, you know, Park Avenue South and worked. And it was an incredible adventure. I met all these luminaries from the board gaming history, you know, the guys that worked at SBI, mostly guys, I want to say. And um, I had an experience working there, and um, it was great. But after, uh, they, near the end, they said, well, we can't afford to hire you. We, we had right. two interns. Neither one of you can really, we can't hire either one of you. And uh, the company went out of business, you know, basically a year later. But um, but but now I have a resume. You know, sure. I, I had now I had two game companies on my resume. So I wrote to Avalon Hill and I wrote to Game Design Workshop in Illinois. And I might have written to someone else if I can remember. And I and it, but I made plans to go back to Charlottesville. I was working as a waiter in a restaurant and I had some other things going. I go back and help the Iron Crown guys. Right. But uh, Avalon Hill called me up after a while and asked me to come in for an interview and. And we and that clicked, and uh, I started working for them in January, I think, of 1982. Do you think you would have? Do you think you would have kept at it if you never heard back from Avalon Hill? I don't think so. I think I would have had to find something else to do. But I, but by then, Iron Crown was starting to become a, a reason, a real business. After I'd been away for a year, sure, they were starting to become better. And maybe I probably would have continued to work for them for free. I don't know. Anyone was getting paid anything in those days. But they eventually built a twenty-year business, and I think that I'm, maybe it's something I would have been involved, more involved with. I'm not sure because they did a couple board games, at least one I remember, and it might have been something I would have stayed more with. And then it's hard to say, but but the Avalon Hill was the opportunity to me. It was like as a young person playing their games, yeah. that looked like the major leagues to me. Yeah, they and were the company. They were the company. So when I got a chance to go work there, it was like this is something I really want to do. This yeah. is like this is the major leagues. You know, I'm I can't believe I'm going to go work at Avalon Hill. Yeah, yeah. Well, what did you what did you start with there? They hired me to. They had bought a company from New York called OSG Operational Studies Group. They'd bought their suite of games, mm-hmm. and they wanted somebody to go through the, the games that they had bought, decide which were worth redoing in the Avalon Hill style, and then republish them. And that was my original my original task. But and I started doing that. We published several of their games. Some of them were small. Some of them were a little larger. One was about the Devil's Den. So. And then, but I quickly was able to change my my uh, my my operation. I started finding other games that I heard about that I thought the company should publish. Some that I knew there was a game called Titan, mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, I knew that was the, that just being developed independently. Somewhere? It was it was published by two guys in Wisconsin, I believe, okay. and they had published it themselves. Published it, and they had built one expansion pack, and they had started a second expansion pack. But then they decided they lost interest. They weren't going to redo it. They were going to let it go out of print. So I wrote to him and I asked him, "Would you consider selling it to the Avalon Hill Game Company?" Right. And uh, I was able to negotiate that, and uh, so we we published Titan. It was a combination of the first game, the original game, and the first expansion pack. And we right. published that, and um, you know, it's still still popular here. It sells for quite a bit of money on. Yeah, eBay. I mean, it's a cult game. I mean, I know people yeah. who are really dedicated to that. Yeah, game. I love playing it, and uh, then they they brought out they offered me a second expansion pack, and. Um, and I, sent, I I played it and I wrote a lot of questions back to them and I never heard back from them. They never they just hmm. went zip. 
Wow. They never responded. So that was that was the end of that. And then I, we were uh, Don asked Don Greenwood was the guy I worked for at Avalon Hill. He got a submission from a published game from from England called Britannia, I think. Mm-hmm. And he asked me if I'd look at that and what if, what do I think of this? And I said, yeah, let's do this. So I got to publish that. Uh, another fr- a friend of mine brought a game in called B Seventeen Queen of the Skies, yep. mm-hmm. and I said, this game we can we should publish this one too. I got to do that one. And then um, um, the Civilization game was under was being published when I was there, mm-hmm. and that was from Francis Tresham in England. And he 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 had a railroad game called eighteen twenty nine, which is one of my favorite games about early yep. railroading in England. And I suggested he do one about American railroading. So he on one of these days a prototype for eighteen thirty showed up, and uh, I got to do that and make that game. Uh, Although there was a, it was tough and it was touch and go because I thought the game wasn't going to work in America the way he originally designed it. Was mm-hmm. So it it proceeded so slowly, it unfolded, you know, it unfolded. You could only buy one railroad, right. and then the second one became shares, and that would become available. You could buy the second. I just thought it was too sedate and too and too progressive for the American audience. And we argued back and forth. I had this correspondence went back and forth, and finally he said, "Look, I don't care. You publish it. Do whatever you want to it." <laughs> I made one decision: was that instead of railroads coming out in progression, they were all available. You could start in Boston, you could start in Baltimore, you could start in Virginia, you could start any railroad you wanted if you had the finances to do it. And um, it made the game really different from his other games. And I think it, for for many years, uh, I thought it was one of the most popular the eighteen double X games, railroad sure. games. And I think because the, the, the decisions you had opened up to you at the beginning was so so wide and so it was such an interesting decision that it just really caught people's attention and that was a lesson I think I learned from that was the you know the interesting decisions you know if you've talked to Sid he'll, he'll, he, he said that uh, a game is a series of interesting decisions right. and I thought the way we opened up the start of that 1830 board game I thought that was that was an, a clue about how important the decision making process was to engaging players right away everybody you could you didn't have to sit there and wait for someone else to start their railroad. You could start your own mm-hmm. instead of waiting. You know you could be engaged immediately. You could start six railroads in the same time, in the same turn. I, I just thought it, I just thought it was interesting to me how that worked. Right. Wow. So sounds like before that you were kind of doing a sort of business development in terms of like you know finding finding games to publish. Was this kind of the first one where you felt like you were? You were in charge of the design. Is that um, I sort of felt I was in charge. I was free. I was given a free hand to yeah. make any decision I wanted to the games that existed. Now I started off by just taking the game and cleaning and making it clearer. The rules sometimes were hard to understand or something like that. So I, I tried to rewrite the rules um, to make it clear. I tried. I, I, don't, I don't think I did too much to the OSU games. If I did anything at all, I just cleaned them up and published them. But I quickly was. I wanted to do more hands-on stuff. So yeah. that's why. I started being aggressive about trying to find stuff that I thought we should also publish, and I got through the OSG catalog fairly quickly, it seemed, and yeah. and I wasn't fired. I mean, I was coming up with other ideas, and I was I thought I was helping the company with, with some interesting products. So, did you feel like you had a? I mean, it probably you didn't have this at the time, but looking back, did you feel like you had a design philosophy at that time that you, you kind of wanted to? to no, I don't think I had any kind of design philosophy. My divine, divine design philosophy was: Am I having fun playing this? Yeah, is it, and basically what I didn't realize was was Sid's comment about it was an interesting decisions. Right. So a game that was presenting me with interesting decisions, I enjoyed. If the decisions weren't interesting, if they were trivial, or did you feel like there were a lot of games that were coming out back then that did not, you know, they had rules, but they didn't really have interesting decisions. I, I guess so. I don't think I thought of it in those terms then, but I think in terms now because they they didn't hold my attention. So I was not engaged. I was not interested in what I was asked to do. The, the problems, the choices the game was presenting to me, 
were not of interest. They didn't didn't, didn't matter to me for some reason. They weren't. Well, they didn't matter. So I don't. I can't call out games per se, but um, like the games, my the other the, I mentioned earlier, where the guy never played his games. He just yeah. he had these interesting systems and he put it together and he published them. I mean, I found them incredibly boring. Yeah. You know, was he, there a was there a board game by another designer during that phase that that period of time that like you you saw and you're like this is how this this is how I feel like games should be made. Hmm. I'm not sure that I felt that this is how they should be made. I just appreciated it as a standalone item. I mean, some of the SPI games that came out, uh, like there was some games about Napoleonic campaigns I thought were really cool. I liked the like the the Panzer Blitz series. Um, um, I, I I don't think I had a philosophy. I was like I was really a, a really a rookie, and I was stumbling around. You know, and all I could rely on the fact was that. I played games a lot, and I could tell personally when I was enjoying it and when I wasn't. Right. And that was the standard for me. If it was, if I was enjoying it, then it was a good game. If I wasn't enjoying it, then it wasn't a good game. And I don't remember people being gaga about too many games that I didn't really care for. There was one that I can remember. It was a game called Hunter. Uh, that that was mm-hmm. it was kind of fun, but I didn't yeah. think it was that great. And there was another one. Gosh, it was very popular. You put these little pips on. It was a, it was a, it was a science fiction game, and it had these little cards, and you put little pips on them. And I can't remember the name of that. It, people loved it to death, and you, and, and you, you had special powers that you drew, and you got. Two oh, you're talking. Oh, you're talking about. Um, oh, <laughs> I'll have to edit in the name. It's a. I mean, it's still a popular game. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's one of the kind of one of the few games from before 1980 that is still played popular. today. Oh, how am I blanking on the name of that? Um, Hi, everybody. This is a post-show edit. The name of the game is Cosmic Encounter. But anyway, yes, I know. The, the, the powers could be extremely different. Right. And, like, depending on what you and had. And you never totally knew what you had. So it was, I mean, people loved that game. And I, I thought it was fun. But I didn't want to play it ten times. I mean, I played it once and I was done. Yeah. A game that I would play over and over again was Acquire. Mm. I mean, I, mean, uh, I, I yeah. really thought that was an excellent game. I think it was Sid Saxon's favorite, yep. best game. And I was actually, it was a book written about the 100 best hobby games. Yeah. And I was asked to write an essay, and they chose to pick a game. And I wrote, I chose Acquire, mm-hmm. which is good because it was the first game in the book. So if you only read the first one, you read my <laughs> essay. Yeah. But uh, so there was a game that was totally engaging yeah. for me. I mean, I never stopped thinking about that game. I was always planning ahead and thinking ahead. Yeah. So I, that was a case where the interesting choices were just totally engaging my brain. That's a good example. I feel like that is one of the, one of the few games, sort of pre you know pre nineteen eighty, that stands up as like you know not not a folk game, right? You're not talking about chess or go. It's a design game that is still compelling today, you mm-hmm. know, because I think board game design has come a long way. But but you know, he was definitely well ahead of his time in terms of like yeah. I was interested because I researched that game and it turned out the first edition of that game was different than what was the one that everybody plays. Really, within what, a year, what he, changed about it? I you know I don't I'm trying to remember now, but. I think within a year he had changed it some significantly, which made it the successful game it was. So even this guy, right. one of the famous game designers of the 20th century, his first edition of Acquire was probably not very good. And it, turned, it took feedback from people who actually sat down and played it to change it and then made it the, the, you know, the, the classic game that it is. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, he's, he's a great. I love Can't Stop. I mean, that's an incredible game too. <laughs> I met that's... him. I met him. Met him once. I never went to his apartment. Apartment was apparently wall to wall games and shelves, <laughs> just like canyons of games. Yeah. He came into the SBI office when I was working there, and I got to meet him. So yeah, he's a guy. I have a feeling he was kind of born too early. You know, I feel like if he was, if he was making games now, like you know, he'd be you know, I, I, he reminds me a little bit of Sid in a sense because they're 
they're they're I don't, like Sid is Swiss and very quiet. Yep. And he's like a he's like a switch watchmaker who's toiling away in his laboratory with his little tools, yep. making these games, you know, crafting. Yep. And and I think Sid Sachs was the same kind of guy. He would work in his little office and he'd just craft away at this game. And I don't, you know, he he was very he was an outgoing, friendly guy when I met him. It seemed, but, um, you know, not a huge social person. He sure. was just he just he would you know he was not out greeting people, and I think he was tinkering all the time. So I think those those guys had that in common. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to think that the appreciation of his games, I think, has kind of grown over the years, where I feel like maybe back in the 80s, people were buying games a lot for, since it was on the box, you know, exactly. like, like the theme of the game. and yeah, like what they broad sides, right, exactly. American Civil War. Yeah, and uh, whereas I think kind of in the 90s, when the Euro games appeared, there became sort of a new appreciation of of like what the mechanics do for a game, and yeah. like how that can make a game that, you know, yeah, the designers became for important. years and years and years. Yeah, you wanted to buy a game by a certain designer because you, you you're familiar with his games. Yeah, yeah. The the German Revolution was fun because I thought board games were going away in the eighties. Yeah, you know, SBI was gone. Yep. and uh, Game Workshop sort of went away, I believe. And Avalon Hill, I was working there. I knew that this place didn't have a long future, and um, I started looking around for something else to do. I was thinking about what do I got? I got to find a job now. And I've had a lot of fun with this game stuff, but I've got to go to work at some point in my life, and. Um, but the Germans, you know, uh, seems especially Settlers Catan, and uh, the whole the whole German game movement really, I think, saved board games. Bro, yeah, made it really pop. I went to the Essen Game Show once, uh, just well, the last three or four years, and I was stunned to see a hundred thousand people walk around buying board games. Yeah, bringing luggage to the shows because they're take home so many new board games. Yeah, if you go to a German department store, you'll find a floor that's just just all board games. <laughs> you know, like it's incredible. It feels like a different world over there. Um, yeah, I, I spent a lot of time in Germany working, and uh, the guys I work with, they would have a board game night every, at least every trip I was there. Yeah, and uh, it was fun. I mean, we try to do that at, at Ensemble Studios, and even I work at Bowen SXP now in Dallas, and we try to have a board game night when yeah. I'm there. When I'm there, and they do when I'm not there, they have it. You know, the rats, but yeah, but you know, I've, I've always it's just a social thing. You know, yeah. it's just it's just fun. You know, to get to know people. I think. I mean, I remember and somebody told me in college that you'll never know anybody as well as. As you will, as you play poker with them, I, I think you mm-hmm. can learn a lot from person just playing a board game. A good sure. board game; it doesn't have to be poker. Yeah, you think you could make like? I mean, you eventually you transitioned to video games, but do you think if you were still making board games, you'd be you you could make sort of a Euro style game or like a game that's a little more pared down? I don't know, to like the Avalon Hill. Games? You know, I, I think about that not too hard because you know it's like I have scratched my game making itch. You know, yeah. I mean, I've been doing it for thirty five years. And I, st- I enjoy them, but uh, I mean, there's other things that are more interesting to me today. I, I, I think that, I mean, if you put me in a room and told me I had to design a game, I would give it a lot. I would give it a serious shot. But I, I don't have a burning passion. There's no board game deep in my heart that has never been made that I want to do. It's, yeah. I've I've been making games for 35 years. I've been through the process over and over and over again. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm happy to let somebody else do it. Yeah. All right, well, let's transition to video games then because it sounds like you were, you know, you saw the the, the ring on the wall at Avalon Hill, mm-hmm. and was that when you started looking around for... Yeah, I started thinking about it. I, I thought, it, I thought I, I was thinking about what can I do for make a living. Yeah. And then uh, a friend in Baltimore got me to play Sid Meier's Pirates on his Commodore 64. Mm-hmm. I said, wow, this is very cool. Yeah. I, I thought this is great. And he says, yeah, this company's right here in Baltimore. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, how convenient was yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Serendipitous was that? You know, I mean, they were on the north. They were on up in, uh, on the outside of the suburbs in the north, and I was downtown. But uh, I said, wow, 
I think I need to work for these guys. This yeah. is where the future, I could see the future. I mean, I'd played computer games. Mm-hmm. Even back in Charlottesville, we played the early Tandy games. And uh, I thought, wow, this is a whole new thing here. This is something special. And so I spent a year trying to get Microprose to hire me off and on. You know, I wrote to them and hmm. I said, you know, you got lots of programmers and lawyers. You don't have any people who actually had experience making games. Would you would you hear back from them at all usually? Or oh yeah, just, they. I mean, they had me. They they asked me for a resume. Yeah. And I submitted one of the games I built. I actually built a solitaire game, just to demonstrate that I could make computer right. games because at the time they were all solitaire. Single player, yeah. Yeah, single player. So, uh, and um, you know they they were nice, but they didn't they didn't uh, rise to the bait as you say. You know they just they, and they actually started hiring guys. They hired a couple guys at. Avalon Hill had a computer game group called right. Micro Computer Games, mm-hmm. and they hired a couple guys away from them. And then Avalon Hill asked me to go work at Micro Computer Games to replace some of the guys who left. Right. So I moved. I didn't move, but I worked. I started working out in uh, Green Spring Valley, which is the valley over from Hunt Valley, and right. uh, and I worked on computer games for about six months. And then uh, designing them primarily. No, I don't. Re- I don't remember designing them. They, they were the way they weren't designed. They were like they were. It was a programming task. Okay. I mean, so, they were converting one. One of the projects I was working on was converting wooden ships and Iron Man to mm-hmm. to the PC. I I, I like that one. Were you programming? No, I, there was a programmer who right. was assigned to the game. He was making it. His job was to convert it. All I was supposed to do was to, man, to produce it, manage it, and be sure it was staying true to the board game. Whatever. I don't. There was no task for me as designer. Right. The game had been designed. Right. He was just you were producing it. it I was producing it. Yeah, right. Yeah. And and I, I I like that one because I can tell you that I worked the first PC game I worked on had four color graphics. Yeah. So yeah. I can talk when people talk about how long you've been in the industry. You know, I say, well, <laughs> I, my first game had four colors. You know, so I've yeah. been around for a while, too long. Yeah. Well, when you translate a game to a computer, you are designing. Like it's yeah, but none of that was my task. Yeah, yeah. Other than the fact that this is not working right, and yeah, you, this is. is what it's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And, and well, I, I, mean, was, I mean, in terms of even, of course, this may have been so early it was hard to delineate that. But like you know, the choices you make about the UI and like how right. players interact with the game, like yeah, that's true. That's design work in and of itself. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so I don't even remember the net programmer's name. Yeah. It was a one man guy doing the whole work, and I just, I just, I was just disappointed because. He took no liberties with it, you know. In the, in the board mm-hmm. game, the, it, there was a board, and you played only on that board. And if the wind blew all the ships into one corner, they all mashed up in this corner of the board. Right. There was no extension on the boarding. Right. I said, "Well, we got a computer now. We, we can, can do that." Why, we, why, right. You know, the ocean doesn't end at these four corners. This yeah. corner here. Why don't we just open that up? And he said, and he wouldn't do it. And so, and you know, that was, and I just remember that being foolish or silly, or I thought this <laughs> is crazy. Right. And I had to do it. I had to do it. There was a basketball game I was working on too. And another guy was programming a basketball game. Because in this day and age, one guy did the whole work for a computer game. He did it all. And I was just managing it for the company. But he sent me this NBA game, and I looked at it. And he had he had a guy named, you know, he had Hakeem Olajuwon, was like one of the worst rebounders in the league. And I said, well, there's something wrong with your stats. And where are you getting your stats? Hakeem Olajuwon is one of the, is the great yeah. rebounder in the NBA. He should not be at the right. bottom of the list. He should be the top. You know, and I, I said, you know, I don't, I mean, I know enough about basketball to know this is not right. You know, and I just remember arguing about stuff like that. Well, in the middle of this, these, these issues that we were having, um, Avalon Hill called me and Microprose called me up and asked me to come in for an interview. And, uh, it was completely, completely wild. I mean, I went in there and spent a whole day. The only issue was that the guy, the, the vice president of development, was gone for the day. So I met everybody else who worked there, or I met a bunch of people. And uh, uh, he had me come back the next day. He says, well, everybody thought you were great. They really want, and I'd like to offer you a job. 
And I said, I'm so ready, you know, because let's make that happen. Wow. And that's why I went to work for Microprose. I gave Avalon Hill, I said, how much, I'll be happy to give you a month's notice, whatever sure. you want, but I'm leaving. He said, well, you can leave today if you want. We'll pay for a week. And that was it. I was gone. Wow. Cool. So what, what did you start with then at Microprose? At Microprose, I was asked to work with Sid and uh, uh, his team. They're building F-19 stealth fighter, mm-hmm. or what maybe became F-117A. How many teams would they have had back then? Like, I have no conception of how big Microprose was then. I would say they had probably three or four teams. I mean, mm-hmm. some of these were pretty small, you know, sure. four or three or four people. Mm-hmm. But this was the big game they were building. Sid's game. Yeah. This was Sid's game. It was the big game. It was going to, the company was going to, you know, swim or drown on the, how well this game did because they'd been, they'd been a, a lean year or two. Mm-hmm. As far as I remember, I don't remember now, but I just know that it was very important that this game be done and be yeah. done well. And uh, my job was just to make maps, make 3D maps and 3D objects and do them. The programmers wanted me to do them as few, you know, indices as, as, I, you know, as, as, as possible. And I remember making a stealth fighter with like 11 points. <laughs> and we, had, we went out, the, we, me and two other guys flew to California to look at silicon graphics machines. Right. And we showed, we took some of our work. And the guy, they wanted to keep my, my, uh, my stealth fighter with 11 points. He says, they want to show that on their machine. They're going to use it as a part of their demo. I said, that's fine with me. I don't care. <laughs> but, you know, that was the kind of problems I was facing. All I was doing was making maps, figuring out where naval bases should be, Russian naval bases. And I remember I got to meet, I mean, I got to meet Tom Clancy because they were mm. also building uh, Red, Red, Red Storm, Storm Rising. Rising probably, yeah. And he came to spend a day with us. And uh, I wanted to talk to him. And he was sort of in the meetings. And, but he went out to smoke every once in a while. So every time he went out to have a cigarette, I went out and talked to him. Right. And I asked him about where the military bases were in Russia and where they're ice free, and and he was giving me these names and he knew all that stuff, so it helped me make the maps. And that was my that was my main job was working with that. But I also was producing a uh, uh, a destroyer escort simulation being designed at a house up in New mm-hmm. Jersey, and um, I don't remember I could have been doing something else. Yeah. So usually we were producers and designers. We yeah, well, I remember projects. F nineteen. That's the game you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that game. That was a. That was a great game. It it um, it felt like the first stealth game I played, which is appropriate, I guess, right? Like I remember it having, you know, just this these moments where like I felt like I was like like trying not to breathe, you know, to like <laughs> get know, through the sneak, radar sneak through. without being yeah. slaughtered. Yeah, uh, which was I think a great choice for a game about flight before there really was the graphics to support, you know, much more. Right? I mean, I think there were you know people trying to make you know, games that involved, you know, 3D fighting, you know, in, with, with planes back then. Mm-hmm. But, like, you know, so much of that game was happening in my mind instead mm-hmm. of on the screen. Um, yeah, that was uh, that was a big success. You know, I think that uh, I, remember, I remember a lot about that game, working on it. And uh, Bill Staley, the president of the company, wanted big objects. He wanted a huge bridge. He wanted this. And they actually brought an artist in to make this gigantic bridge of targets because we, I was listening to the programmers. I mm-hmm. thought they were my, I was they were my customers, and they wanted small right. so for processing power, and the president wanted gigantic for wow <laughs> factor. Yeah. And so we were we were tossed back and forth. And I remember, I, I remember clearly a lot of things. But working late hours, and the, the VP of development came in and told me, Bruce, you're working too hard. Mm-hmm. I said, Well, I know this game's important to the company, and I'm I'm new. I want to yeah, make yeah. I want to make a good good impression. He says, well, I know you're making a good impression. You don't have to worry about that. I said, well, I, I can promise you. I can't promise the game's going to be done on time, but I can promise you my part's going to be done. <laughs> and so I was trying to make a, I was trying to be a good employee, you know, make a, make yeah. a, make, make, make my. Did you see it. much of Sid's design process at that point? No, I don't remember that. I don't remember that. I remember I tried to keep my head down and not mm-hmm. rifle and just do my work and be, and be 
and be a good good team member, you know, do my job. And plus, I had these other responsibilities, and I wanted to do that well too. Um, but I must have made a good impression on him because my next project was assigned to do the exact same thing on F fifteen two Strike Eagle, right. and I had another. I was given another. Uh, um, a producer project convert Commodore 64 uh, a game called Gunship I think to the Commodore 64 right and uh, and he he came into my office if I remember now I don't remember what he says he says Bruce I'm, I'd, I'd like you to be my assistant you know be my you know, my, my, my number two my, I need I need a guy to be my producer my writer my you know my sounding board and I'd like you to be that guy so I must have done I yeah. must have made a good impression and I think anybody in that office, there was probably half a dozen of us in the same slot that I was, would have, would have died for that position, or happy to have it. And uh, he chose me. So, I mean, that was that's when the good things really started happening. That's when I really, you know, work with him much more closely. Right, right, right. Wow. Um, so it was. Uh was let's see what would be next then would railroad tycoon be next is that what happened well it that? was but it wasn't by plan okay what was actually next was a game called covert actions right because mm-hmm. some other guys had started that project and got halfway done with it and had started a spy game it, basically. yeah yeah and, and it hadn't it hadn't come together right but it intrigued sid i think i mean i'm not really sure you'll have to ask him but i think it intrigued him enough that he said you know they were going to stop working on it. he says let me let me work on it let me try it so yeah. i got to work on this spy game with him and we started working on it, and uh, you know, it was just fun to talk to him because basically the way he worked was he would do coding in the afternoon, and he put a disc on my chair or bring it in my office and said, "Okay, play this for a while, right. and we'll talk tomorrow." And then I would do my other projects or my other work, and I'd get in some time with his game. And then when he came in, usually I was I was I felt I was a good employee. I think they wanted you there at nine, or whatever it was. I was right, there at nine, nine. Mm-hmm. and uh, so he wouldn't come in until ten or something like that. But by nine, I'd already done something or done my other stuff, and I'd come into his office and I'd say, okay, I I have a little yellow pad sheet of stuff from the play test that I'd done, and we'd talk about that, and then he'd say, okay, uh, give me some time, and I'll go work on some more stuff. So I go back and work on something else. And then he would give me a new version, and we'd do it all over again. That was a daily day process. And in the middle of this, in the middle of this process, um, we were playing. We were playing eighteen thirty, the railroad game. Right. And um, and he, he, I came in with you know if you remember Sid, if you knew Sid, he always had prototypes on his PC. He always yep. had three or four, ten little projects he was working on, just noodling games, uh, just ideas. And he said, "Take a look at this." And he had like a railroad, a little tra- trains running around. I said, "Oh man, that looks very cool. What is that?" Because <laughs> yeah. you know I. I had model railroading and rare badges, a Boy Scout. Yeah. I, I love trains. I used to take the train to Chicago and sleep yeah. overnight. Good memory. And he said, uh, "Yeah, we're thinking. I'm thinking about doing this railroad game. So I'm going to give you. I'm gonna take a look. Play this." And he gave yeah. me this this prototype of Railroad Tycoon, which I regret that I never saved the first edition, mm. the first first version he ever gave me of that sure. game. Sure, yeah, I bet. So he gave me that, and I said, ah, "This is a lot. This is this could be very cool." And we and mm. we and we play with that for a while. And then the company found out about that we were doing this, and the president said, "I want this spy game. You know, you can't. You know, I don't know. Forget this other game." So Sid, I remember he he might remember this. We went to lunch together at a place called Sir Walter Raleigh or something up in the mall north of the uh, office. He said, "We have to make a decision about whether we're going to do this railroad game or we're going to do this spy (laughs) game." I said, "Well, if you're asking me, there's no contest, man. We're doing this railroad game. That is really cool. I mean, I, I think that is so much fun." And he says, well, I don't, remember, I don't remember the conversation now. I just know that we finished. We decided we were doing a railroad game. And I said, yeah. well, so I, I, have no, I have zero weight at <laughs> this company. I, I don't have a vote in any kind of meeting. So it's up to you, but I'm ready to, do, I'm ready to go. Yeah. And, and sure enough, uh, he, however he talked Bill Staley into it, 
that's what we did. Yeah. And it was him and I and an artist named Max Remington. Yeah. And that was the team for the next, uh, pretty much for the next six months. And uh, we, we had a lot of fun making that game. We went to Strasburg Steam Railroad for the day, had a field mm-hmm. trip. There's a Pennsylvania Railroad Museum there. Yep. We went to, uh, we had lunch in some caboose that turned into a restaurant or something like that. We yep. went to, we took the steam train ride. And we did another railroad trip once we went down to Washington, D.C. We took the train to Washington. We went to a big model railroad exhibit in a National Geographic building, and we went to the Smithsonian and looked at the railroad exhibits yeah. there. So, I mean, this is what I'm doing for a living. Yeah, you know, yeah. It was like, you could, I, would have, I would have done this for nothing. It's funny. It seems like that's the type of game that really shouldn't have been made on the West Coast. It seems like Railroad Cartoon like, who needed to be made by someone who was on the East Coast, you know. Plus, like, Baltimore like was the home of yeah, railroading like in America. We went down, we went down to the Beano Railroad Museum, yep. too. Yeah, I remember going to that as a child, living in Baltimore. I mean, it was a lot of my favorite places. So it was like it was a joy to work on that project. Yeah. You know, I learned a couple things there too. I remember one of the things I learned there was early at some point we had these random national these disasters that would strike. You know, right. like a flood would wash mm-hmm. out your tracks or snow blizzards. And it was so frustrating. You know, you're building your trains and you're trying to get all these things to run, and all of a sudden something you had no you had no control over just wrecked your stuff for a while. Yeah, and he he agreed with me after a while. He said, you know, we I thought hey, I hate this. You know, what, this is. This is not good. You know, it's like the hand of God is coming in. And yep. who's having, you know, it turned out that it was part of his speech when he, years later, he, oh, I'm not too long. He gave a speech about game design, the first I ever heard. And one of his points was the designer should have, the, the player should have the fun, oh, not right. the designer. Yep. So it seemed to me, looking back in retrospect, I think these random natural disasters wrecking my railroad was not me having the fun. It was someone else having the fun. It was the railroad, it was the game god or the computer was having fun. So he took that out, in a sense, he removed some of them and he gave you a way to avoid the other one. Like when the one the floods, if you built a cheap wooden trestle, that could be washed out. But if you built a stone trestle, it would not wash out. So right. you could you could there's something you could do about you it. could do about it. And I thought that was an interesting learning experience for me. Yeah, yeah, that's good. It seems like it seems like these ideas keep popping. Like you know, I've seen some Civ games be developed, and these ideas keep coming up. People are like, oh, we got to have a volcano come and destroy your city, and we got to have a flood that washes out your stuff, and like. The, the ideas kind of often pop up in the expansion and then they get pulled out again in the main game because they're, they're just not interesting, you know? Yeah, like nothing, they, don't, yeah, exactly. they don't involve the player really in any way. Yeah. And even if, even if you're preparing, like, well, if you build city walls, you'll be safe, like, it's still, it's still not really player-led, you know? It's not fun to build something just in case. So it's happens. like you're buying insurance. Yeah, exactly. So I think we did that. I mean, if I remember Civilization, you, there were walls and yep. they prevented some things from happening. Yeah. So I think that, you know, we gave you a way to ensure, you know, you could be risky. You could take, you know, it was like, it was funny. It was like almost a life lesson. You're yeah. taking, you're learning risk management. Yeah. I, and I think that's okay for some games, but I feel like the things like, I, I think it's okay for games where those things are going to happen more regularly, but they're kind of like such a strange occurrence. There's such an odd occurrence in Civ. Like they're not going to be happening you're not, you wouldn't want them happening every twenty years, right? You'd want them or every twenty turns, right? right. You want them happening every hundred turns. But then there's but then they're so rare that they're not something you're thinking. They're not right. part of your core game loop, yeah, exactly. right? I, so it's just it's it's, it's appropriate for a different game. You know? It's like it's like the game kicking me in the ass. You know, yeah. I don't need that. I mean, I'm having enough trouble figuring out how to do this right without these random kicks. Yeah. So I have another question about Road to Coon, which I should say. But, you know, I go around back and forth about, like, what's my favorite game of all time. Um, and usually I come down on either Pirates or the original Railroad Tycoon. You know, wow. I think, I think those are both just incredible designs. Really? Um, hmm. Yeah, I, I loved Railroad Tycoon. Um, but one thing that stood out to me about, about Railroad Tycoon is well, the part I loved 
was, and I guess this is no surprise considering I'm currently working on like an economic game, but it was the the whole process of like optimizing moving moving cargo around from spot to spot, getting right. the the timber to the lumber mill and getting the cows to right. the slaughterhouses and figuring out where the best mail and passenger routes were and, and seeing the map adapt to what you do, right? Like maybe this, in your world, like Columbus becomes the big city, not Cincinnati or whatever, exactly. because you decide to go through it. And like, I thought that part was magical. Um, but at the same time, there was a bunch of other stuff in the game about line switching and you know uh, i don't even remember the right terminology but like like stuff in the game that you could tell had like sort of a model railroad background right right? like where like the game is that part of the game was like about like getting um you know actually organizing your trains and like i didn't necessarily have an interest in that part like i think what i usually did is i just double tracked everything because i didn't really care about that i didn't want to worry about it and i felt like that was one example of of like a game kind of a little bit not being sure about what it was really about like not like i feel like you could have made a game that was all about like this is a model railroad and it's all about like figuring out like making sure that the train stops so it doesn't run into another train or this is like an economic simulation right you know and it'd be interesting to hear your perspective on that i think that's a fair assessment i think i think we were we were you know no one had ever made a good railroad computer game Right. You know, that was the first, as far as I know, and it had flaws, you know. And I think I think you raise a good point because I think Sid's inspiration was model railroading, right? And so he, then he layered on the the whole economic system, which mm-hmm. I think which is your favorite part. Yep. And then there was also a stock market going on. It yep. was not very well. I don't think it was really well really conceived. And so I, I don't know. I think it was a really good try. And it, it touched a nerve with so many people that it was this really, it's kind of, it's like you say, it's one of your favorites. It wasn't, it was imperfect, right. really imperfect, I think, in a lot of ways. But I met a guy who said he played it, once he figured out how to cheat, he never played it again. Hmm. And I know another guy who figured out how to, how to win it. So he, he, he never, he never replaced the train. He sent it one direction and destroyed it. He could make so much money sending <laughs> trains in one direction and destroying them because they could go fast. Yeah. And didn't have to turn around and all this other stuff. Yeah. He, he, you know, it, it really broke the whole model. I mean, sure. it was not a lot of. I mean, we played it. We played it a lot, but we didn't think about all those other ramifications of it. So, I was encouraged when he brought another railroad game out that he would fix a lot of that stuff. But I don't. I, I don't think that that the next railroad game they did was that much better. Or did or did anything really well? I think I was disappointed when that one came out. Yeah, it's. Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, because the thing is, I. When I think of it, when I, whenever I think that my favorite game is Pirates, is because I feel that game kind of was perfect, even for its time. But the thing about Railroad Tycoon is I, th- there was just nothing like it at the time. Exactly. And it just seemed like this, per- this, this is a perfect example of using a computer, at, having a computer do what it's good at. Exactly. Right? I agree with that. Which like, enabled you to like, have this experience you could just never have somewhere else. Or you know, you, it, it would be a board game that you just don't you know you, you don't have the endurance to play right yeah. um and uh like that was that was really something but what, what i also see in railroad tycoon is something that i think is just hard to avoid in games where you start the game with a certain conception about what the game's going to be you build that you play it and then you you start getting interested in this other aspect of the game you flesh that out but the thing is you never go back 
it's, or it's really hard to go back and actually strip out that original stuff mm-hmm. just because it's still there. You know, it's still there and it actually takes time to get rid of that stuff. Right. But like, I think it's important, like, you know, when you get to the end of the project to kind of go back and reevaluate those choices you made early on of like, would the, would the game be better if we cut some of this stuff out that we just took for granted in the early part of the project? Yeah, this, it, you know, you don't have to ask Sid, I mean, what his perspective on that is. Uh, I will say that we were working on a version two of that game. Mm-hmm. We started immediately working on Railroad Tycoon 2. Really? But the president of the company didn't like that game. He mm-hmm. didn't think it would be a seller. I don't know how it did. It's, the first one sold well, right? I thought so, but I don't really know. I just know, by then, I didn't know this at the time, but Sid was not an employee anymore, not an owner anymore. He had sold his really? part of the company, yeah. Oh. Not wow. long after I got there in 88, he sold his share of the company to, to the president. And the president you know, mortgaged his house or something to buy it, or I'm not sure, but he bought him out. And Sid was just a contractor. He was getting paid, you know, a good piece of money for every game he delivered. Sure. So he was paid to deliver games. Right. And so... Uh, but he couldn't control. He, he had some control. He was only going to do... He was going to work on what he wanted to work. They right. couldn't tell him, really. But so they told him that they didn't want Railroad Tycoon 2. We worked on it a month. I mean, I built maps for Africa, and I built maps for, right. for other parts of the world. I might have built a map for India. I don't remember now. I built the maps... And I was researching the locomotives. It was my job was to pick the engines and stuff. And we were picking out car. We were listening to cargoes you could carry in different parts of the world. And uh, and, I, and maybe he would have revisited some of the parts of the game that were not quite polished in the first one. Right. But it, after about a month, we were, I was told they could tell me what to do. I was an employee. They said you can't work on that anymore. Right. You're not working on that anymore. Yeah. You know, whatever. Huh. And so, I guess whatever he didn't. Whatever we went back and they really wanted him to do the spy game. So at that point, we did the spy game. And uh, uh, which was it was interesting. I I, mean, I remember going back to him and saying this part of the spy game is really fun. You know, these, right. these car chases or these battles inside the houses, the buildings are neat. We should let's, why don't we just ramp that stuff up and take out some of this other stuff? Yeah. He says we're just getting this game done. I got I got to get this <laughs> game finished. So I mean, you can ask him about that experience. But I got the feeling that he was he got the game to a playable state, and uh, he wasn't going to because because we had already started working on Civilization. Right. Because I remember in May, I have a disc still, and I kept this one. I have a floppy disc from May of 1990 that he gave me, surprised, you know, surprised me. He said, this is, I want you to look at this new game. This is this is what's going to be called Civilization. So I have it home somewhere, the the, the floppy, the five and a quarter floppy, wow. the well, first don't, version. Don't lose that one. I think I'm going to donate it to this museum yeah. in Rochester if I can find yeah. it. But It should be in your museum. Like yeah, Jones, so, this belongs in your museum. But, yeah. yeah, So, but I remember thinking, holy moly. This right. is cool, you know. This is I can just see this. Yeah. And uh, and and I and and but we he says we, we can't we, we can't really work on this one. Yeah. We got to well, finish the spy game first. Before and, we get to Sid, which I know we're sure, definitely going to talk a lot about. Um, so you're probably aware that Sid actually even has a covert action rule that he talks about, right? I don't remember this. Name. No. Okay. So he, what he offers up is what he calls the covert action rule, which is that I hope we get this the the, the the phrase here right. But he says two great one good game is better than two great games. And what he means by that is he felt like in covert action, potentially the separate parts were fine, but you were spending so much time in each one of them that when you popped out to like either the, the high-level game, you kind of forgot what you were doing. Right. Um, and like it had the balancing issue of like trying to, like keeping you focused on... Uh, one, like in Pirates, for example. And I remember when I played Covert Action, one of the things that first stuck me, I was like, oh, it's the Pirates menu. It's like, you could tell, like, it was kind of, you know, it was kind of using probably a lot of some of that code. and sure like it was. Had a little bit of that philosophy in it. But in Pirates, you know, each of the specific things, you know, the sword fighting or the, you know, the town ship battles, battles or yeah, battle. all that stuff, they were all little bite-sized chunks, right? You, you wouldn't, they wouldn't last longer than two or three minutes. 
right? Whereas in corporate action, um, maybe you're doing like the, the missions inside the, the, the buildings or something, right. and that might take half an hour. Right. Um, and he thought that, that that was what sunk that game. Mm. But, I mean, do you have... I just remembered that? that there was parts of it that were not very interesting, and uh, there were parts that were, and I thought, why don't we ramp up the stuff that is yeah. more interesting and, and, and pare down the stuff that's not. And he says, we're just finishing this. Yeah. There, we we got a deadline. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna finish it. There has been recently sort of a number of people who've kind of like brought up a new appreciation for that game. Actually, um, enough so that I feel like I actually want to go back and revisit it at some point. Like uh, people who really uh, liked the sort of dynamic story generation that happened in that game. Yeah, I see. There's a, a friends of mine in, in Vancouver trying to do that story game. Some kind. Of, uh, I know. I know. I know. I mean, that's a, it was an interesting idea. If you could yeah. generate mysteries. That would be that was the, well, that's the holy grail I think he was tre- reaching for. Yeah, right? exactly. Um, that's interesting. Well, considering that he had you know civilization on his mind, I guess I can understand now maybe why. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, he was. I mean, I got the sense I was just like, you know, peon. I just, I just got the sense. Well, I got to finish this, and yep. then, we, then we're free to do the game we want to do. Yeah. So let's just wrap this up, and then we'll start working on the one we really want to do. And we kept we were working on it anyway. We we you know, he had a new version of Civilization for me, even yeah. though we weren't officially working on it. I was playing it. So was the first version of Civ you played? Was this the real time version? I, I I don't remember. No, it was turn based. It was turn based. I at think that point? it was turn based because so. part of the the Civ story I always heard is he started it as a real time game, sort of inspired by SimCity. You saw SimCity, and then you yeah, said, we we played a lot of SimCity. I mean, I, I, there's a little small. He told me he says if if you could do th- to, uh, no, it wasn't SimCity. It was like uh, it was uh, M- Empire Deluxe. Mm-hmm. If you could change ten things by Empire Deluxe, what would you do? What would you change? So I thought, well, I'll do twelve. You know, I'll be, I'm a smart guy. <laughs> so I sent him a list of ten, twelve things I would change, yeah. and I, that was part of the process of building civilization. I think because now he'd had the experience of Railroad Tycoon, and he'd had uh, uh, he's played SimCity, and we played Empire Deluxe, and, and so we played the Civilization board game. Right. And I think those those were four. I'm not sure they were the only, but I think there were four major influences on sure. what yeah. was common. Yeah, Empire really is like proto Civ. You know, like it's missing a ton of elements, but like you can see. But I look at that game as like I mean, there. somebody asked me one time the best games of all time, and I thought I said, well, if I had to make a list of 25, I don't know if I could come up with 25, but Empire Deluxe would be one of them. Because as a strategy game designer, I mean, an awful lot of stuff that's important in strategy games was in that game. And, uh, you know, so we certainly thought about borrowing things from it. I mean, yeah. And I think that was interesting because that was a long term project, you know, by university students. Mm -hmm. It was a group effort over a lot of time. Right. And it was played to death. And I think that's another example of how playtesting can get you to a good spot. Right. Yeah. That's right. I forgot that that wasn't a design, like, there wasn't a designer of that game, per se. I don't there, think so. There's a few video games like that over the years that have popped up, and it always seems fascinating that anything good can come out of, you know, kind of this amorphous design by collaborative effort, yeah. you know, a collaborative group process. But, uh, yeah. So, I mean, to me, if, 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 if nothing else, like, I feel like Civ succeeded kind of almost purely out of, like, audacity. You know, like, it was such a. It was such a giant topic to, to tackle. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I remember what Sid's talking about. One of his comments was, choose a big topic. You know, I mean, I gave a presentation. Here, here we are GDC. I mean, I gave a presentation at GDC around 1999, and I, it was like guidelines for successful development, game development. And one of the points was, choose a big topic. You know, because mm-hmm. like, I mean, it's, it, I mean, it couldn't be anything bigger than civilization. But I think that was one of the things he brought out of that was like, you got a big topic. Right. You got a lot to work with. So now, what do you remember from, from the very beginning of Civ that was different from what, what shipped? 
Like, what were what were the big things that were missing oh, or didn't work or something? Well, there was. I don't remember. Mind? I can't. It's, I'd be hard pressed. I should if I could ever play that floppy. I would. It would be worthwhile to play. But I don't. I don't. I can't remember because like it just was. I mean, let me tell you about the process. I mean, he right. would give me a version of the game. Yeah. And like the same thing. He'd give me it to be a floppy. I come in in the morning. There's a floppy disk on my chair. Yep. Every day, almost every day. Wow. You know, I'm just saying it was. It would be on my chair because he would mm-hmm. stay after I was long gone. Yeah, and uh, and then I'd be coming before he did. And yeah. so I'm playing. I'd play this game for an hour or two in the morning, and I would draw a crowd sometimes hmm. because he wouldn't let anybody else play. It. You were the. I you was were the, the only. I was the only. Tester. I was the entire test team. Wow. The only. The entire whatever. I mean, he yeah. didn't want anybody. He didn't. I don't know. You can ask him why, but my guess is he didn't want a lot. He didn't want too many voices, too much noise. I mean, he relied. I mean, he trusted me. Which is very flattering that I represented every man, the average gamer, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he says like, whatever you know, you're, you're, I get enough input from you that I'm good with that. So whatever. I mean, I'm telling you, like I'm telling you, months went by. I was the only one who could play that game. Wouldn't anybody else play it? But they would come in and watch me. So they would say, "What's going on in this game? How's this going?" I remember a guy from sales, a guy named Glenn Drover, who's still a good friend of mine. Right. He's now a board game designer, and he was like dying when he come for a sales meeting. He said, "What? Is, let me show me this game. What's going on with it?" And uh, but we, I would play it, and we go back, and we sit in his office. Sometimes we sit there for hours. I remember another a guy who sit across the hall from him said, "I was having trouble getting my work done because it was so interesting listening to you two guys talk about that <laughs> game." Uh, you know, he said it was just fascinating to hear you yeah. talk because we just sit there and noodle stuff and ideas. And so basically, I'd play it, and we discuss it, and right. he'd, he'd have points we wanted. You know, this part of the game. What do you like about this or that? And what, what you know, and we talk about where I was, where I was being frustrated, where I want to do more of this. This was really cool. I was, I was really engaged, interesting. This is an interesting problem. Right. I'm having trouble pulling up examples, but uh, yeah. But I just remember, I just remember being. I remember very early. I thought, boy, if the whole world knew what I was working on, yeah. they would be incredibly impressed because I, you know, had played enough games by this time, seen enough. But I knew this was really going to be a special so you, game. You had a sense at this point that this is one of those games. I that, thought this that, was going to be this was going to be something that was going to blow the socks off the gaming world. I thought it was really going to be neat. It was. Did the rest of the company share that opinion? I think so. I mean, I I thought even that, Bill. I can't speak for Bill. I yeah. don't think he. It was way out of his ballpark. Yeah. I mean, he wanted a flight sim every year. Yeah. yeah That's sure. all he was cared about. He wanted to do flight sims, and everything else was like. You know, the, like the, the smart guys down the hall, I trust him once in a while, and he was going to trust Sid. <laughs> yeah, sure. And, but I don't think he was he was enamored of civilization. I mean, I know I'm pretty sure he wasn't because we had trouble getting staff. I mean, at, at some point we had it, it turned into a real project, you know, yeah. and we had to get people to help with the art projects, and yeah. we had to get music and sound. Well, and I don't think Bill and even the VP of development wouldn't give us the resources. Yeah, we got penalized because the game was late. Yeah, and he blocked me. For, he, I was telling him I'm producing this project. I guess yeah. I'm saying we need more of this. We need we need help on this. What do you mean by penalized? Like, is that something specific? Yeah, well, there was bonuses paid for projects being done on time, <laughs> and Civilization shipped like a month and a half late, and our bonuses were reduced like by twenty or thirty or fifty. I don't remember the number now, but we lot we got less in our bonus because the game shipped late. And, wow. and I've been asking for months for staff to get the game done on time, and wow. so I felt I felt bitter. It made it easier for me to leave within a year. Sure. When yeah, I, yeah, I that's that's gratitude. Boy. Yeah, I mean that's that's yeah, I mean that'll always be the game basically. That like if there's one game you people remember Microbros for, it's going to be Civ. I, I would mean, think so. so. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I mean, know there's, there's tons of great games, but I mean Civ is Civ, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's an institution. Well, I think so. I think so. I mean, I'm 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 pleased that I've worked on a game like that. It's evergreen. I mean, it's sort of like I think it'll, as long as people play games, I think there'll be a version of Civ. Right. And you know, I mean, I'm happy that I that I worked on the first version. I mean, I don't think I was. I mean, I tell people Sid could have done that with other people. I couldn't have done it without him. Right. It wouldn't, you know, that's the, 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 he was the guy. I mean, I was just, 
I was there, and I was, I was, I think I helped him. But yeah. uh, now I, I, I've, you know, I've gotten, I've had some feedback meetings with Sid, where you know he's working on a project, he wants to hear what what we say. I'd be curious if it was the same type of thing. In that, I feel like he didn't, he wouldn't get too involved with discussions about features or like what he was actually going to do. He kind of wanted to hear what you think, and then he wouldn't say a whole lot. Mm-hmm. And then a few days later, he'd be like, "Hey, take a look at this." Yeah, and he addressed something of that. You know, he addressed something that you were concerned about, but he probably didn't at all do the thing that you suggested. Um, right. That- I think that's fair. I mean, I, I mean, I we talked a lot, and I, and I have, a, I just remember it was a very enjoyable experience. Yeah. It was fun working with the guy, and uh, mm-hmm. it was a great experience. I'll never forget it. The gen, I won't forget it in general, but I can't remember specifics. I don't I mean I, I can, I can hardly think of anything that I pointed, I suggested that it was part of the game. The palace was, I think, was my idea. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't remember that. You know, like how you reward, you keep building your palace gets bigger and bigger. And you just think, I need a reward. Yeah. And I mentioned this idea, but maybe the palace gets bigger. And I don't remember. Like I think it's like you said. I, I didn't. He didn't really say anything. But two weeks later, a week later, or three days later, there's a palace in the game. You know, <laughs> just like I, I think, I think the idea for, uh, for civilization was. Build a, my idea was build a spaceship and go to Alpha Centauri. You know, mm-hmm. how do we end this game? Right. And I, I don't know if, if that's the the way it actually came down or not, but it seems to me I remember that's something I came up with. But I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I'm fair. I think it's fair to say that the, the game design is 99% him and 1% me. But I just remember it was a lot of fun. And I'm, I'm thrilled that uh, looking back on all the opportunities I've had, that was an incredible opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, I'll bet. Um, were you guys can. What's the right way to. Sort of way to put the, put this. I mean, it, it was probably you know you had a hard time expecting what was going to happen with Civ after it came out. Uh, I, mean, I remember I remember hearing from uh, you know people in Micropose that you know it was kind of a touch and go even sort of to do a sequel, which seems crazy now in, in retrospect. Um, but uh, that uh, that they you know that the company had like very low expectations for it. They kind of did it, but like they didn't really expect much to happen. I think that might have been true of the of the executive suite. But I don't yeah. think it was true in the development. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I think I the, think I the think guys people... will make the game, and it, you know everybody got to play it eventually, and all the players and I, like Tim Train, you know he's gone on to mm-hmm. a great career in games, and he was a tester on that project. I don't think there's any doubt that everybody who worked there in the game development side thought it was a special game, and it was going to be great. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Did uh, but what I guess I'm trying trying to get at is there are sort of some of the core rules of Civ. Um, the game has been played so many times that um, that they've been analyzed to death, mm-hmm. sort of. Um, especially things like um, so in, in in Civ in Civ One and Civ Two. There's kind of like this this way you can play the game. Where you know you basically pop out a settler as much as much as you can, and basically you put a settler on every other tile. Right, two on little the board. two one and two man cities right. around the map. And you're taking advantage of the fact that um, that basically the home city, like your home city tile, you basically get for free. You know, you don't. It's not like really supported with the population. Um, and like by the time we got to Civ three and Civ four, you know these were some of the issues that I spent a lot of time thinking about because by this point, you know people had an expectation for you know how the game how the game was going to work, and we had to kind of figure out like what well, can we actually you know sort of like fix some of this stuff. Um, and the thing about the thing about it is it's you um, a lot of the games have these problems. They're just never played to the so much that people find out like all right. these these specific holes. 
Like, did you think of, did, were these things that you guys thought about at all at much at the time, or were you focusing mostly? It was it was such a new game that it was just it was just a question of like trying to get it to to work. Period. I think it was just trying to get it to work. We had not. Like, I mean, I think one of the problems with me being the only guy who played it for months right. was the fact that we didn't get a lot of exposure and we didn't have ace hardcore gamers beating to death and trying to cheat and figure out all the ways. I mean, quickly, quickly people discovered ways to beat civilization. It, was, yep. it had to be repaired very quickly because we just hadn't done any near the amount of testing might have been appropriate. So, I mean, I, I think maybe that's true of all SIDS games. You know, the first edition has got a lot of flaws in it, not un- un- unintentional, but... It just hasn't been played enough and tested enough for, you know, like at, Iron Crown, at Ensemble Studios, we we eventually hired, for H2, we hired really top players around yeah. the country and brought them in, and their job was to bang on the game and try to bend it and twist it every possible way and find every flaw we could because we got tired of fixing yeah. things. So we, there was nothing like that. There was no, there was no test you know, criteria for like for those early games. I mean, I mean, Railroad Tycoon was made for one hundred sixty-seven thousand dollars. I mean, I did wow. a spreadsheet for the company. I was asked yeah. how much time the people put into it. You know, yeah. it, it was not it wasn't a full time job for anybody. Yeah, not even Sid. And we just squeezed that. You know, so it was like eleven months. You yeah, know, three people. Well, I think what's amazing of that period is kind of like looking back. Like at the Beatles or something, where you realize they did what fourteen albums in eight years or something like that. To like look to the that period from like. I guess 86 to 90 or something where Sid made Pirates, F-19, Railroad Tycoon, Covert Action, Civilization. More than that. He did a submarine game. I mean, <laughs> he created four or five genres in a space of like a 10-year period. I mean, a, you know, flight sims, submarine sims, yeah. the God games. Uh, you know, the, you know uh, he did, he did he, you know, he, his, his work is, I don't think it's quite appreciated, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's just, it's astonishing. Like, that, I can't, I, I mean, I just don't think anyone will ever have a run like that. In that compressed of time, it's just because games just take they, they take a different amount of time to make nowadays. Like, it's I, I, I just I have a hard time thinking I could design a game that quickly. Well, that, that, I, that's deep. I mean, you can make you can make a, a a great for the for its format, say iPhone game or something. Yeah. in a year, like for sure. But to make a game, you know, with the depth of Civ or Railroad Tycoon, like it's it's hard for me to understand how that happened so quickly. I, I was there. I was in the middle of it. And I don't. I'm not sure I could explain it either. I just I just think. That, I think in the, I think about this so occasionally. And I think there's always been a platform frontier where a small team could make a significant game. No matter you know all through that industry, and you know the you know the phones have become that platform. Right. Obviously, yep. small teams can do something really incredible. And I, 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 I just think also was that the game industry was so young at that time that there was just all this, all this empty space that had not been filled. And sure. a lot of it's been filled now. It's hard. Yeah. But he was such an imaginative guy that he could, yeah. and he was so prolific, he could fill a lot. He filled a lot of space quite, quite rapidly. Yeah. And one of the interesting side notes of Civ is when he was working on Civ, two other like you know, legendary strategy game developers were also working on games of the exact, on the exact same topic. Uh, you know, Dan Button and Chris Crawford were both trying to make sort of history of the world type games. Um, like in parallel with Sid, and for various reasons, you know, they Sid, Sid was the one that was able to you know figure out how to make it work. Yeah, I, maybe maybe because Sid was uh, was in a group, you know, and he had resources, you know. I mean, let's look. Hey, I mean, I, I, he had me, okay, but that's not that's not enough. But I come from a strategy game background, right? So I was a probably a good sounding board, and Danny Bunton was probably working by herself in Little Rock, and mm-hmm. uh, and and I, I think Crawford was also working pretty much by himself. So they were all they were limited by what they could imagine themselves. Whereas Sid could call on 
well, he called on my imagination for one, and right. then there was a, a whole group of people there who were, you know, that he could call on too. Yeah. So I think that that might have made a difference. It could have been the difference between. I mean, I mean, I mean, Danny Bunt did some amazing games. Sure, I mean, sure. Like, I mean, I mean, I'll, it'll tell you that uh, the Africa game he did was like one of the big inspirations for him. Yeah, well, he's told me Pirates was inspired by the Seven Seas of Gold. Seven Seas of Gold, that's the one. Both, I mean, the, the Seven Seas of Gold was the one. I'm okay. sorry, yeah, that was yeah, the yeah. one that really inspired him a lot. Yeah, um, and Mule is. Incredible. I mean, that was huge inspiration for me in Offworld. I mean, her games are, are incredible. Um, I, sure. I just think that Sid had the advantages of like of, of all these other people yep. sitting around. Yeah. Well, it's. I mean, it's to his credit that he really sought out feedback, right? I mean, like you know, you weren't necessarily asking for him for disc every day. He was. He was producing. No, for I mean, you, you know? I, I just thought I don't know. It was just a magical time. Yeah. I mean, I could just. I remember very fondly sitting in his office just chatting yep. about the game and you know I mean we would drift I mean we would talk about all kinds we exchanged books we'd read all kinds sure. of esoteric stuff you know we, we liked history and economics and things and we, we we talked about a lot of different things but civilization almost everything was grist for the mill you know when you're talking about a game about the history yep. of civilization it's all practical yeah. and, and I don't know and I mean I just remember telling him stuff about the stirrup being important he says why the stirrup <laughs> and I said well because the mounted soldier yep. he had no he had no fulcrum uh, you know if he hit somebody with a sword he's likely to knock himself off a horse yep. and when he had a when he had a stirrup he, the whole power of the horse was coming in the point of that lance, yep. not just the lance itself sitting in your arm. Now you had a hundred, you know, a thousand pound horse hitting this guy in the chest, and, it, and he said, "Oh, I see." You know, so it, you know those are kind of things. That, those are kind of conversations we talk about the technology. It was fun, you know, talking yep. about technologies. And, yeah, I remember once uh, during Civ Forest development, Sid, Sid gave me a book on technology, just you know, something to help me out with. And I opened it up, started flipping it through it, and I kept noticing that there was these specific words underlined. And they were words like ceremonial burial and you know literacy and so on. And eventually, I was like, "Wait a minute! This is this is the book he chose the text from in Civ One." And I was like, "Oh man, I had I it was it was one of those moments where I'm like, oh, I, I'm going to have to give this back to him, but I don't really want to.' <laughs> like, I remember I had to write all those blurbs. I mean, I mean, Bruce Milligan says he wrote a bunch of them, and that may be true. I just remember I wrote a lot of them. Yeah, because yeah, we. At the point, yeah, at some point, we needed more help. You know, we, yep. needed, we needed more people doing things. Sure, yeah, yeah. I mean, I wrote this. I wrote the manual. The manual was a long thing. Yeah, the civilopedia. The yeah, manual, the manual was. Uh, I enjoyed writing the manual. I remember one of the artists of a woman, actually, a lady, asked me why I wanted Michelangelo's David in the book. You know? mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I just, I'm no art critic, but I understand this is a this is a very transitional figure. You know, when yeah. he, when he made this, it shocked the world and it changed sculpture forever. But it's a, it's a statue of a naked man, you know. And so this woman had to draw this naked guy. And she said, why did you choose this picture? So I tried to explain to her, well, I'm no expert. But this is what I read. It's an important thing. So right. I picked it. No. <laughs> um, so I guess maybe we should transition from, from Micropose then. So I guess you didn't, you didn't stay much longer after Civ. Well, we worked on a railroad game for a while. Yeah. And, uh, and then um, I got married. Mm-hmm. Um, and... My wife was an executive with Citibank, and she made three times my salary. Yeah, that's a whole other story. But I was the lowest paid guy on the design staff because mm-hmm. I came from Avalon Hill to pay nothing. Yeah, I was happy to go to Microprose for anything. Yeah, and then the guy who hired me left after a year, mm-hmm. and I I was always the low. I was recruiting guys to come work at Avalon Hill for Microprose for ten thousand more than I was making. Wow. And I finally told the guy in charge, "Look, you know this is wrong. You yeah. know, I mean, I'm getting reviews. I'm telling me I'm the most effective guy on the design staff yeah. after suit. Why am I the least paid guy here? Why, yeah. you, why you got to do something about this?" He says, "Well, I'm sorry." Bruce, I can give you a better percentage raise, but I can't really, you know, I can't do that. I said, fine. So when my wife uh, in the banking business was really terrible, and she she left Citibank to stay 
locally so I didn't have to leave my job. And after a year, she got a great job off in Chicago, yep. much more than I was, three times what I was making. Yep. So I left. You know? yep. I mean, December Christmas party, 1992, is my last event. Yep. And so then I was, in, I was in Chicago trying to figure out what I was going to do. But actually, I was writing strategy guides. Because people had written strategy guides uh, about civilization, about Railroad Tycoon. Yeah. And I got to meet him, and I got to meet the publisher. And I said, look, I'm looking for something to do. Can I do this for you? He says, absolutely. A guy who's made games would be great. So I wrote this, I wrote a strategy guide for colonization that uh, that Brian and Jeff Briggs wrote, did. And I wrote some other ones for him. But after a while, it didn't matter how good the book was. It all that mattered was how good the game was. Sure. So the books were written by the lowest bidder. And and uh, so I was I had to start thinking about it. what am I going to do now? And that's when Tony Goodman called me up out of nowhere in 1995 or maybe 94. And uh, I hadn't heard from him in 15 years. And here he is. You know, he, Now he's an adult and he's got his own business in Dallas. He's mm. doing... He's doing software for banks, right. and uh, he's got guys who want to make computer games. And he's never given up his love for games. So, so uh, I, we had these long, hour-long conversations about what it takes to make a game, how games are made, what's all this. I was telling Barbara, my wife, I said, I think this guy's going to start a game company. You know, and then finally he did call me back and says, Okay, we are going to start a game company. We want you to be involved. And I said, Well, I can't move to Dallas. You know, my wife's got this terrific job, and uh, he says, You don't have to come down here permanently. Just come down occasionally like once a month or something like that, come down for a week and, and we'll build this, we'll start this game company. So that's how I got involved with Ensemble Studios. And that was like uh, like in February of 1996, I think. Right. And we, we were toying around with another idea. We, the first idea we had for a game was kind of like the, the television show Lost, where you, you're crash, you're, you're, you're harpoon, uh, marooned on right. an island and you've got to fight off natives or something and build a ship and get your, get your ass off this island. That was the first game. We, and then, then one of the guys who was working with him, one of the first employees, uh, Tim Dean, as I recall, he walks in with his game Warcraft. Yeah. He says, this is the game. you got to make this. <laughs> yeah. you got to do one of these because it's blowing the socks off the gaming world right now. And then the idea was, let's take the ideas of civilization, like a historical game, and do a Warcraft 2 Command & Conquer RTS based on the civilization kind of like world. And then we narrowed it down to the first the game we would make would be about ancient civilizations. Right. And then Microsoft eventually became our publisher. They came up with the name Age of Empires. and um, that, that Was it an easy solve to them at that point? By the time we showed it to them, I think it was. You know, because you have to remember Microsoft at the time was just getting their toe in the water yeah. with computer games. Did you have a prototype at that point? Yeah, we did. Yeah. We didn't show it to them until we had something playable. Because I remember, I remember the situation exactly because Tony was a really smart guy is a very smart guy, visionary, and he had already laid the foundation. He'd gone to game shows or whatever, and he'd left his business card with people. And uh, and um, he met some guys from Microsoft, and uh, um, they were coming to Dallas to look at another company's games. And he asked them to come by for an hour. And they said, yeah, we, if we can come by. They asked, can we come by for an hour and see what you're doing? So we came by. They came by for an hour and stayed for like four hours. you know. And then when they left, they said, we want you to bring this to Dallas. We want you to come to, to Seattle and show it to some other people. So we had a whirlwind. I remember this. This we went to we went to New England, and showed it to um, Hasbro Interactive, mm -hmm. and they liked it a lot. And then we went to we flew across country and uh, showed it to Microsoft, and there was another company in Dallas that was kind of interested. And Discovery Channel, I think, was kind of interested. They were doing games, right? So we had like we had like four different people sort of interested in it. Yeah. But we didn't well, we didn't go looking or talk to anybody until we had really cool you know like guys with bows and arrows and horses sure. running around screaming. We could fight a battle. We wanted to make a good impression. Right. I think Tony was very smart about that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean the age games always were very visually 
visually distinct in advance for their for their age like how did they do that necessarily from like starting a game company from scratch? It seems like that must have been a big Well, he challenge. had another company. You know, sure. That was, that was a going concern. Right. And he, so, he, so he financed the age game with, uh, with the other company. Right. So when, but, but just to find people to do good work. Is well, we had a, he, had a, he had a super programmer mm-hmm. who wanted to do games, Angelo yeah. Loudon. And uh, Tim Dean was working on another game company. And mm-hmm. they had met at a game club in yeah. Dallas. He came on board. They we 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 hired. We were very lucky with artists. We hired out of the Dallas Art Institute, and Tony was very vision vision you know vision oriented. He yeah. he built software and he made a point of making it the interfaces and the look really polished. And right. I mean, I came from where I came from. Graphics was like okay, whatever. It's right. all about how you play the game. <laughs> yeah. you know, like I said, we go back. I mean, four color graphics. The first yeah. games I had were black and white tandy games. So it was all about how the game played. You know how it looked wasn't really critical. So this was new to me, you know, and he was focusing on how it looked. It had to look great, and uh, and that was very, very smart, you know, yeah. for his part. So they made a good impression, and we always try to make the games look good. Right. And I think we did other things too, like we made uh, the like real looking places with animals running around, yep. wildlife. Yep. And one of my saving savings, I write that uh, uh, Dave Pottinger, I work for now, he 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 hasn't forgotten was I said the sun is always shining in Age of Empires. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it was always a bright, inviting sure, world yeah. that you wanted to know more about. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've always had problems with dark, forbidding yeah. games. Well, that's, that's the default for a lot of game studios for whatever reason. I yeah, don't I don't get it either because like I think you're crushing your audience. You're really narrowing your your, your who is going to actually consider buying this game when you make it ugly or dark and forbidding. You know, maybe it appeals to a certain audience, but. I had another comment about my original GDC speech was like, when you set out to make a PC game, you know the potential audience is everybody that owns a PC. Right. And as soon as you start making decisions about what that game is about, you're throwing away like I think of it as a big pie. Yeah. You're throwing away slices of pie when you make decisions, and I think when you make a dark, forbidding, yeah. horrible situation, you've thrown away a lot of slices. Now we try to hold on to as many slices as we could yep. with that bright, inviting world. You know, I remember Joe Balkowski, you may know. From Baltimore, he told me he, you know, playing Age of Empires is one of the best things to do with his daughter, one of his daughters. Yeah. And they had so much fun just making maps, and she was showing him how to use. She was so adept with losing, using a computer, saving games, yeah. using a map. He said it was like one of the best things we ever did. So here's a child playing Age of Empires and having fun with it. Nowhere she's not competing online, playing multiplayer, but she yeah. was still having fun with that product. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the odd things about game development is the people who are drawn to the game development. They like seem to like certain topics over and over again, you know, which is basically fantasy and sci-fi. Um, but it's so easy to see that you make a game like Civ or a game like Age of Empires, and like you're just gonna you're just gonna sell more copies, right? I, mean, I hope so. I mean, I, that's what our experience was because I, I talk about this a lot in, in days past. Was I remember I remember uh, uh, a guy I wrote for Computer Gaming World told me that when he talks to women who play games, they all played Age. Yep. You know, so that was not a traditional audience. Yeah. And we talk about you know guys talking about their mo- their father has played through the whole campaign yep. like he keeps playing through it he just it's something he does enjoys yeah so we talk about today even today we talk about let's put a lot of different experiences in the same box yeah I used to say I want the smartest fifteen year old kid junior high to say this is my favorite game yeah and then other kids in that class can buy that game now they can't compete with this kid who's a really sharp you know computer whiz. But they can find a way to play it solitaire, single player, make maps, whatever. Yeah. And they can have a lot of fun. They get their money's worth and tell somebody else I enjoyed it. And and I think that helped explain why age did the age games did so well. You know, within within uh, the different styles of play, hardcore to casual, and across from Europe to Asia, not every game has been able to to reach all those markets and be successful in all yeah. of them. The age games were one of the few. So what did what did you bring, and what was your role you know, on the age games? 
Well, I, well, part of my role was like how we should build the games. You know, yeah. like I, I brought the whole idea of like let's prototype it as fast as we can, right? And then we'll play it to death. You know, and play it every day, every day. You know, Ang Tuesday was the programmer's day to play. It was called Angry Tuesday because it complained about <laughs> all the bugs that they hadn't fixed, as yeah. I remember. So <laughs> we we and so we we we, we iterated constantly. Uh, I I don't remember my role specifically was I remember stuff like uh, you know civilization, how we could you know let's like the idea of civilizations my original concept was that the game would start in the ice age and the ice would melt and the land would be revealed and it was sort of instead hmm. of a blank map it would be an ice covered map that was revealed as the ice melted and so you had to carve out your civilization and that that took too long so we, we started with something else and i remember picking the civilizations i remember building lists i mean i remember the civilization like the hittites you know I remember, I remember an article about our game in uh, like a history magazine they talk about how this is not history but have you ever seen the Hittites mentioned in a piece of Anything, software before? Right. Yeah. Right? I mean, they think <laughs> we should be just thrilled that people are caring about this stuff. Right, yeah. And I remember, I remember, I remember uh, for H2, I came up with the idea of the catapult. I mean, the, the, um, the uh, uh, oh gosh, the, the big the big throwing. The, the trebuchet. Trebuchet, yeah. I said, and there's nobody working on ensemble studios that ever heard of a trebuchet, right? And I said, <laughs> we got to have a trebuchet. And I said, yeah. what is that? And I said, "Well, this is giant catapult," and it's it turned really out cool. to be it turned out to be a really cool yeah. thing. I mean, the guys did a fantastic job of re of creating one, and then it had a great sound. It was a devastating weapon, and so it was like when that started. When you heard that sound, yeah, it was like chills were going down your spine. Oh my God, it's doom! And it was like, I think I was. I'm really proud of the fact that maybe there's millions of people around the world who now know what a trebuchet is because they played Age. Uh, so th those are kind of things I enjoyed. I mean, I, I remember I wrote a lot of. History historical notes. I mean, I wrote. Uh, we picked picked stuff. We play tested it. We made decisions about uh, what to include. We I did the first. I think I worked on one of the first series of scenarios, but I think they were all replaced because we, we they weren't they weren't that we 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 tried to come up with a theme for them. And I don't know. I, I you know I wasn't working full time when we first started. I was only right. a part time employee, and then I became a full time employee. But I still lived in Texas. I still lived in Chicago, so it was hard to have an important role when you weren't there on the spot because decisions were made in the hallways sure. day long. And so I was fine. I, 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 uh, somebody else was, I mean, Rick Goodman was the lead designer on age one. Um, uh, uh, um, oh gosh, the names are escaping me now, but uh, I can't believe it. Uh, the names, but the, there was a, the lead designer on age two. Oh, I, I'm gonna, I can't believe it. I can't, this name slipped my name. Age three was Greg Street. Mm -hmm. Ian Fisher was age two and age mythology. Those right. were leads. I mean, I mean they they did find it. They did really good work. I mean, uh, I was just another idea, another person for the ideas, and uh, like, you know, weren't many things that I can say was absolutely my job. Yeah, I always imagined that maybe the random apps was like. Oh, you, I, you I had a list. I mean, one of the yeah. things I did remember for making age one. I this is my idea. We. Warcraft 2. What are the things about Warcraft that were great? It wasn't Warcraft right. 2, but Warcraft. What are the things about great? What is great about Command and Conquer? Right. What is great about civilization? I mean, civilization, right? And what are they not doing? So the things that these games are good at, we got to be that good at most right. of that. And then the things they're not doing, this list over here, the things they're not doing, this is our list of opportunities. So like Civilization had random maps, but Warcraft 2 didn't. Warcraft did not have random maps. They were right. like, they were like chess boards already pre-designed. So let's do random maps. It'll be different. And, uh, and I think the biggest thing we did, of course, was make a game about history because uh, yeah. in the computer gaming world, 
around 1990, I would say around you know, 97 or 96, was there was 50 some real time strategy games in development around the world. <laughs> really, yeah, yeah. Know, Total it. Annihilation was common. There was yeah. all these other games that were really yeah. good, and we were the only one that was not science fiction or fantasy. We that's, were the only that's, history. That's game. amazing. That really is amazing. It's similar to I was amazed at like how little competition The Sims had for years and years and years. I mean, just a game that I mean. How, sold what 100 million copies or something like that and like no one ever really tried to take it down you know no one ever really tried to compete with it PC shut that off yeah no one ever really tried to uh, compete with it because it's just kind of like you know game developers have the topics that they like exactly it just talk about low hanging fruit if no one else is going to make a history based RTS well you have to be passionate what you're doing yeah luckily at Ensemble our guys like strategy games yeah Rick Goodman and Brian Sullivan. We all played yeah. all those board games. Well, if you have a, if you history wargaming background, like that's perfect for yeah, that. Yeah, and I think yeah. that because Rick was you know was a partner in the business and uh, well, maybe not a partner, but he you know he had influence and he was the lead designer. That you know the design had a lot of uh, they led. You know they weren't like uh, an adjunct to the process. They were leaders of the process. So I think the designers were always held a lot of respect at Ensemble Studios. You know they yeah. were they were like guys you went to for answers. And you weren't dictated to by programming or our constraints to what we work. You know, it was a lot of give and take. But the designers were not second class. I've seen, I've, I've seen, or I've heard that at other places. Right. So you know, designers were had a lot of sway. Yeah. No, you seemed like you had a very. It seems like the the disciplines worked very well together in an ensemble. Um, I, I think so. I think we we felt handicapped because we never really had an art director. That mm. you know, we just we, we seemed to struggle to always find an art director. And Defo- Tony Goodman was the de facto art director. Right. You know, he, but that was a good choice because he had a very good vision. I mean, th- those games it wasn't an accident. They looked the way they looked, and I think the look was important to their success. Yeah. Well, I, I admired Ensemble a lot. I, I think if I had never randomly heard back from Fraxis, I, I probably would have kept pushing the work at Ensemble. Yeah, I remember recruiting you or at least talking to you on the phone. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I actually, I have a... It's I probably have, wise because I don't know how much longer we last when Microsoft made <laughs> Well, no, this actually goes way back. I, I have an email from Dave Pottinger from 1999. Oh, well, that would When I was first looking for a job and I was looking at various studios and, you know, Ensemble was just a natural fit for me. You know, I like strategy games and I like history and so on and so forth and... But I just I couldn't pass up a chance to work on Civ three. That just seemed like oh, you know who would blame me for that? <laughs> no other choice. But um, yeah, I remember you know he said like yeah yeah you're we're interested you want to keep talking. But yeah, I mean once once I talked to Sid, it was kind of it was kind of all over. Um, but uh, yeah, but yeah it's uh, like there were some there were some things about the Age games that they just did things differently. Like one one element of Age of Kings that always stood out for me and is a huge inspiration on. Uh, Offworld, the game I'm working on right now, was the way the market worked in in Age of Kings. And I don't remember if it worked the same way in in Age 1, but the the market being when you clicked on the market, you could buy or sell any resource in the game, right? Right. And the price would go up or down depending upon the actions that any player did. Right. And I just thought that was amazing, right? Like, it was such a... um, What's the right word term for it? Um, Like responsive I, I want to say realistic but I don't I don't mean the, the connotations usually go along with realistic it mm-hmm. was just it was the type of thing that a, a computer did so well 
and like you instantly got a sense for like how they all you had to do is look at the market and you could have a sense of like how the game was developing. You know, you suddenly saw right. saw, you saw you know, what wood was the critical going, resource. Yeah, so wood going up, or you sort of see stone going up, and you had a sense of what was going on. And it, it sort of influenced your decision on how to play because oh, stone is disappearing. Right. I need to I need to nail down my stone supply. Yep. And you got and you making making this choice about like I want to sell this material, but I'm afraid that if I sell it, it'll make the, you know, am I better, if I sell it, I help myself, but am I helping the other side more because I'm they making, can buy it they cheaper. can buy it for cheap. They right? don't have it and I can, yeah. I think that was a very interesting thing that was done there. It was very, very cool. I remember reading a book about the history of salt, you know, of mm. all things. Right. And uh, they talk about salt being a critical resource. I mean, like a, like a, a strategic resource. Sure. Like the Roman army, when they marched into a new area, the first thing they do was control the salt supply. Yeah. Because it's so critical to food for the winter. And I, and I thought that our game reflected that kind of stuff. You know, gold was the disappearing resource. You know, like, uh, I, I, I don't remember now exactly how it worked, but I, you know, some could come back. You know, trees could grow back. And no, there's always more trees than you knew what to do with, basically. Yeah, but the gold was really limited, yeah. so you had to husband your gold. So we had these trade routes where you could generate gold. But, yeah, I thought it was, I thought, I thought it taught, I remember I was at, I, I think it was GDC or E3, or maybe it was E3. And a Japanese game designer wanted to meet. He, he request a meeting, and he had done games that were nothing like ours. Mm-hmm. But he said he was completely blown away by Age of Empires. You know the way it modeled the real world. And he specifically talked about strategic resources and how they. He said it just mirrored to him the whole situation in the world today, where oil is so critical to the modern economy and right. how the world resolves around oil to to a certain extent. And he was. I, I thought, you know, wow, you know, well, we're just making a game here, you know. Sure. Yeah. But you know, but it, but we seeped in all these things, these influences yeah. that that had, you know, maybe some real world. You know, we well, obviously we're trying to model some of the real world stuff, but well, yeah. obviously we weren't trying to recreate it. I mean, I remember I even asked specifically about that issue. I mean, I actually we had to make a presentation to Bill Gates at one point, really? Tony Goodman and I, and. Uh, he wanted to know should we be marketing this game as an educational thing? Yeah, yeah. and I, by then I was pretty clear on my idea that you know we're making games here, and my example was we borrow from the historic record stuff that'll help make a good game. Like Age of Empires, two does not include the Black Plague. There's right. no slavery. There's a lot of things we left out because they don't add to the experience. They're, they're, to the fun experience, I think people can learn things. Yes, but the learning happens after you're entertained first, and I think I'd rather use these games as an introduction if you thought it was interesting. Go read and find out more about it. And I've actually we've actually received letters from parents. My student was a mediocre student. He started playing Age of Empires. Now he's in the history section. He's wanting to read all about these cultures and these civilizations, and these units. She said, "It's like I was amazed at how much this game had a positive influence on my son." So you know, t- to be an employee of Microsoft, that was pretty. That was a pretty powerful message. You know, this is exactly what the you know Microsoft's message. You know, or their goal was to make software better for people around the world for yeah. their lives. Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, like, I often, um, you know, get excited about working on a game to, you know, help you know, help communicate or get people involved with, uh, you know, some sort of historical idea. Um, but I often find that run, like, you start down that path, and at some point you hit kind of the reality of, like, how your idea works in practice. And you're, you start, you see that you need to change it because of gameplay reasons, right? And then you suddenly feel like you're not, you're not staying true to that original idea you had, and it, um, it means it's like there's always a certain you know there's always a certain amount of, of, of tension there, and you know you kind of you have to kind of take that approach of, well, I don't know what's the right to put like what type of what type of game you're making like is it 
you know, Civ and the Age games work great as introduction to history, you know, and like, but is there a role for games like as on a as a next step or, or I'm not sure. Have you? Have well, they're serious games. I mean, right. certainly they do serious modeling, and there's you know the military obviously simulates things. Stimulate, you know, but I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I'm I've, I'm really strongly in the camp of entertain people right. and, and let them if they want to do the real hard work. I mean, I tell people this is a funny, not funny, but I remember. People say, where do you do all your research? You must do an incredible amount of research. And I say, here's the secret. We do our research in the children's section of the library (laughs) because the books are full of pictures. You need lots of images and pictures to give the art people to create stuff. And the history is just about the level that you need for a large audience. You know, when you start digging into the heavy books, you're going to lose your audience. It's too arcane. I remember playing a game about the American Civil War where you had to assemble a cabinet. And if you didn't do it properly, the war fell apart. And it, basically you had, to, you had to do what Lincoln did, or yeah. you had to do what the designer thought was the ideal political climate for the cabinet. I thought, you know, here's a case, again, it was a point to Sid raised, who should have the fun? Right. I think that Civil War game, the designer had the fun, the player was not going to be. The same thing happened to me in a game I played about Normandy invasion, where I'd read a lot about Normandy as a kid, you know, or a young person. And so I broke out of Normandy and I started making my attack, but it, you know, ultimately failed. And I got this message from the game: "Okay, you didn't do this properly. You know, you you, you should have do try this next time." And I'm thinking, you know, I thought the game was telling me that I had not played it properly. I had not followed the designer's perfect plan. And there was a case where I think the designer had all the fun and I didn't. And so right. those were the kind of you know. The, so when Sid said something like that, I think back my experiences and yeah, yeah. Well, that was an issue with all those early war games. I guess if we kind of jump back to the beginning, which is. You know, they really were designed around trying to be about about the battle without really thinking about the player, right? And like I think that I think the games, good games, sort of take on a life of their own where they do kind of at some point kind of leave their subject matter behind um, and like what people care about. Like when you play Age for the people who play Age for hundred hours and play a multiplayer and like really get into that, at some point what they're thinking about is how all the how all the units counter each other and how people like to play the different civilizations and, and all that stuff. And like that is something incredible in and of itself. Like it's nice that it has this historical theme because it gets people interested in history and it's an, an easy entry for the game. But the thing the, the something that's really magical about that game just really exists purely it can only exist inside of a video game in and of itself like to me that's that's what makes video games so exciting i agree it's the it's the it's the personal interaction you know it's like i'm i'm the hero and it's my plan you know i'm you know the, I, people talk about story based games mm-hmm. which is another example of like what is a game you know is a story is it just a digital book you know i don't know so but i i think with the story the age games were a blank page right and so we gave you the words and all this stuff and you you wrote the story yourself with your play style mm-hmm. and and so some for some people it was a story for some people it's just an incredible competition you know maximization optimization right. problem it was a mathematical issue yeah you know, i remember i remember a, a guy talking to me i think i got he got work for blizzard he talked about i got this letter from a guy in korea and he said if i just move this one thing one pixel to the right he would never lose a starcraft game again all he had to do was move it one pixel and he could guarantee he would never lose again so that was obviously an optimization issue. You know, that was like that he was getting his pleasure from out of that. But right, you know, um, yeah. Well, I mean, I definitely. I mean, I certainly know that from the Civ community. You know, there's a there's a very clear sense that there's the people who like to there's the people who like to that we call them the you know the builders. Like they they never want to go to war. You know, right. and there's the warmongers. That that's how they play. And then right. there's sort of the role players who they're all about the diplomacy and like. Like at some level, you can't you can't try to make a game to appeal to all those people. Instead, I think it's just 
you know, it's good to kind of like just be open about, you know, not trying to force the player to do it any one way. And then the players surprise you with how what they do with the yeah, game. Yeah, the players always surprise you. I think we try to build in multiple paths of victory right. to incorporate all those different play styles. And, and to touch on that a little bit was I, I spent some time in Germany uh, working with guys who make these browser games. And they're mm-hmm. like these, you know, you play for 20 minutes, you build something, you come back an hour or two hours later. And, and uh, one of their designers spoke to me. He says, you know, you know, you talk about the typical game styles, like the you know, the builder or the uh, uh, the warmonger or whatever. He said, "Well, we have a guy. We have a we have a style of play in Germany. We don't see much in America. It's called the laborer. They <laughs> just they just show up and work a little bit on their building. Yeah, and that's good enough for them. They yeah. come home from work, whatever they do for they a living, and they just want to build something for a little yeah. bit. You know, do a little hammering, a little nailing, yeah, yeah. and then they're done. They come back tomorrow and do some more, and, and that's perfect. And they'll spend money on our games. And there's a, there's an entire industry." basically in Europe and Northern Europe of laborers yeah. who work labor on their games which is I don't think we see that in America yeah. very often these yeah, games don't do well in America that's fascinating yeah. I don't think they do well in Asia but there's a there's a whole style of gamer that we've I've never really I think we talk we touch them with because we make you build up a little bit in the age games sure but we don't make the whole game about optimize that optimize for them yeah. yeah and people who like that can linger in it yeah. It's and there's people who rush through it. Yeah, it's fascinating how different cultures clearly have different game styles that they, they gravitate towards. I mean, it's like it's a, such a clear example of how cultures are different across the world, you know, what, what type of games they prefer, um, for sure. So now, so after, you know, after Age 1, Age 2, then you guys kind of took a turn with, with Age of Mythology. Like yeah, you, we did, and I think we were trying to keep our people fresh, you know. I mm-hmm. think... Yeah, for a lot of people, age three was like, oh my god, a slog. You know, we know, you know, they, they, you know, it was it was getting to be work. It wasn't fun anymore. So the idea with kind of the age of mythology game was let's let's tweak it a little bit. You know, right. like god powers and mythological creatures, and so the art people are not doing another soldier; they're doing. Yeah. But plus, we had to face we you know we had to face the issue of gunpowder weapons. You right. know? I mean, that's going to change a little bit. You know, yep. we, you know that was going to be an issue we had to deal with formations possibly. And we thought that Asian mythology would be a break. You know, it'd be it'd be so different. You know, the, the art styles would be really different. Egyptian and Viking, yeah. And what we decided on. So it was that. And plus, plus there was there was some financial issues there. I mean, the fact that Microsoft owned the Age of Empires, they didn't own Asian mythology. Oh, really? Okay. So Asian mythology was a pre. I was a new IP that we owned. Right. Because we had, you know, what, I don't know. I'm, I hope I'm not giving away secrets here, but you know that that was our project. We right. owned that, and uh, that's the way we designed it to be it's sure. our own project well so. once you establish yourself as a company you do want to work on something that's yourself yeah and that that encouraged them to consider I think to buy us you know because right. that way they, they, they you know we were happy with Microsoft I think as a publisher generally you know there's always friction but we were generally happy they gave us the length the time we needed to make these games a lot of publishers would have you know done something we, you know, we always took a little extra time but I think they were like I said, they were fairly new to games, and our games are such a success. Sure, we were the first game Microsoft game to be on the cover of the major game magazines. We, and it's, you can make a case that we 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 you know we brought them to the forefront of game publishing. Right. I mean, I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm not sure I'm stretching or not, but we 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 were certainly the first major. I think the first major game that they ever had success with. Yeah. Well, Age so, of Kings was sort of monumentally successful. Right? It was for the day. It was a perfect storm of a game at a yeah. time when everybody had the same platform. Everybody was on it. Windows 98 or something like that, yeah. every PC in the country. I think it's interesting because I think it's, I think it's a re- people don't really think of it this way, but I think it's a real challenge when a company has a success like that because what do you do after that, right? Like, you, you it's, it's sometimes, usually successes like that are, 
things you can't really repeat. You know, not to that level. You can hit that quality again. Yeah. But you can't. You know, you can't ever really guarantee that. Yeah, we took sales. all the things we learned making age one and things we couldn't do for age one, came together in age two. And yeah. It was it was a it was a terrific experience. You know, it's a, yeah. a game still very highly revered. I mean, it has a chance to be a game, something like Civilization that'll, that'll be around. I mean, yeah. people still talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what stood out for me about Age Age uh, Mythology was that. Um, yeah, I can tell you, you know, the, the company was, you know, try, def- obviously trying to do something different. Uh, and they're definitely experimenting with kind of like the asymmetry that you see in, you know, like kind of the, the StarCraft type games. Um, and, uh, but I, I, I think there was a bit of an issue there in that um, each of the sides separately had so much depth to them that um, I, I, I like, I felt like I couldn't, I had a heart, I felt like there was such a high learning curve to get to not just understanding my own side but understanding the other sides yeah. that I had a hard time necessarily feeling like I was be able to fully engage with the rules you know whereas the, the, one of the one of the nice things about Age of Kings was um, that sort of philosophy of the the different races were not really all that different right. it was kind of like that chart where like you had all the different types of units and it kind of like you had little check marks of like well these these civs have these units and these civs have those units right. but like a lot of the civs like 50% of the stuff they had was the, the same and right. then you you, know, you had three or four kind of like distinct powers right. you know whereas you know I played a lot of Egyptians but like the Vikings were like a complete mystery to me you know <laughs> um and you know that's that's interesting, but it's a very it's a very different feel. It was tough to make, you know, the balance. I mean, I remember one of the guys there, Chris Van Doren, insisted the Vikings were OP, overpowered, mm-hmm. yeah. and and he was going to play them until somebody could beat him. And I don't know anybody ever beat him, <laughs> you know, because it was a warning sign that maybe the Vikings were too sure, too yeah. tough. I think it was, you know, it was a, it was a fun experience. I mean, there's people today who still think Age of Mythology is their favorite of the series. Yeah. And there's a website devoted to Age of Mythology. There's a young man who's always asked me to come online and uh, yeah. answer questions or something like that. There's a real following. Yeah. There's a lot of people who'd like to see us, see us have done another version of that. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, somebody may do it someday. But yeah. it was, it was fun to work on people. It was. It was. It wasn't easy to do that asymmetry you talk about. Yeah. Was really it was a it was a balancing nightmare. Yeah, yeah. The god powers were really a struggle to make work. Yeah, not be too much and but still make them cool. Yeah, well, there's a lot. Of, there was a lot of creativity in that game for sure, um, and I think it was it was it was fun to see ensemble stretch themselves for that game. Well, because, you talk about how do you follow up age two? You know, well, yeah. we did something really I think remarkable. Yeah, the guys. You know, Ian Fisher was the lead designer and. We had a, a lot of input from a lot of people. I think, I think it was it was a really a really good step for us, you know. And uh, and we did something. Okay, it wasn't maybe not the, quite the success that H two was, but still, it it was a very quality game that, that did nothing to hurt the brand of the yeah. company. Now, my distinct memory moving forward, my distinct memory of Age of Three, Age Age Three, will always be um, because you guys were working, you guys were developing it. F- basically in parallel with Civ 4. I think we actually came out within like a month of each other. It was, yeah, it was I, bet, very, I remember that. We were both, you and I were both given press presentations at GDC that, or E3 one year, I think. Yep. And um, we were getting close to announcing our game and you guys did your initial reveal of Age 3 and I remember those screenshots, like when those screenshots came out, like our entire art staff was like depressed for a week. <laughs> they were all just going around like, oh, we've, you know, we're, they, they felt... 
like you know you guys were just a, a level above what we could do um and uh, or you know what what we we've been even trying to do at that point and like it was, we just we did we never seen anything look like that in a strategy game um i remember that because we we decided we we struggled that game quite a bit trying mm-hmm. to think about new things and because we had, I mean, remember this, you don't remember this, but maybe what Computer Gaming World announced the RTS genre was dead. Yeah. There was nothing new coming out. And so Microsoft panicked. They said, yeah, we got to go with some new stuff. Yep. And we tried a lot of new things, and everything we tried just didn't seem to make it. We we, we moved so far away from what an age, we thought an age game was. And then we came back to the yep. came back to it. And so much iteration. We had 12 versions of the city of the home city before we were happy. We were even content with one. And it was just a struggle, a real struggle, a project to make. But... What we could do was make it look fantastic. Yeah. And so we put a lot of energy. Dave Pottinger was, uh, I think, the lead programmer on it. I mean, he they just put an incredible amount of energy into making it look fantastic. And it does look fantastic. The physics was amazing and everything. And just to, but, I mean, I liked the game because it was a period that I really liked. I mean, sure. I, I have ancestors who fought in the American Revolution, or I served. And so it was my story. You know, the other age games were too far back, yeah. but this was my family. You know, this is my history, and it was. I I really I appreciated the way it looked and the the the, the, the you know the, just the, the whole thing was great for me. The Age of Discovery is one of my favorite periods in history. Yeah, you know, I love to read about all the explorers and stuff. Yeah. So I, it worked for me. Yeah, I mean thematically it was great. It must have been a huge challenge though to go to gunpowder units. I mean, it was. I we mean, had to, we had to worry about it a lot. I mean, I I just remember. You know, lots of iteration. You know, way too. Much. I mean, no. I mean, Mike, we were, we were very fortunate to have Microsoft as a publisher because not many publishers would have stood for what we were doing, changing things, pairing stuff up, redoing it. But you know, they had been through us, been with us, and they'd stuck with us and been rewarded. I mean, those games, H two was. I mean, part of the part of the okay was H two was still selling. You know? Sure. Our, our our games, Age of Mythology, was doing well. I mean, we were still making the company a lot of money, so we had earned. Yeah, you know, the ability to. I get. I'm not sure if that's the answer, the right word. We they were willing to give us some rope. Right, right. Yeah. Did you? Um, I mean, I would think at that point there must have been some internal debate about whether you guys should go back to an age game or. Oh yeah, try sure. To do something different. I mean, I, the only clear, clear uh, discussion like that I remember was when we finished Age One. What will we do next? Yeah. We all sat in a room in our old office space. We had a group meeting. 20 people in the room we were all going around the room one after another what would you want to do next we talked about a World War II game or what with this or that or an age game at all or whatever something different and you know my view was we should move from the age to the middle ages you know knights and castles I mean I thought it was a natural you know I mean uh, nobody had done really that in strategy you know real time strategy I thought it was it was a classic period you know? sure. and, and yeah. I think when the, uh, we got done with it we had like a, I don't know if it was unanimous but we felt really strongly about that period would be the great game. We, yeah. we didn't have anywhere near the same same consensus for what after for H three. You know, there was a question about it. I thought Napoleonic period, you know, the Revolutionary War period would be a pretty cool period because even though they were gunpowder weapons, they weren't super long they range. Yeah. The, the real tr- dilemma would have been how do we do you know a World War two era game, yeah. which yeah. we never got to. We we teased it, but we never got to it. Yeah, it's funny. There never really there hasn't really been a great World War two RTS. I can think of. I mean, there's kind of ones that are a little more wargamey, but um, that certainly seems like something that could work. <laughs> I don't think. I think what you do for that, and I think they were done pretty well with uh, um, 
uh, the game from Vancouver, Relics game. Oh yeah, of course. Company of Heroes. I'm totally blanking. That is a great game. I don't know why I didn't. Think but it's it's real time tactical. <laughs> it's really not yeah. real time strategy. But it's like it's. I mean, that was a success for me. I mean, I, yeah. I enjoyed playing that. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's a great game. I don't know why I didn't think about that. And and yeah, they made some huge changes. I, I just love the feeling of like you get the little dots of like specifically seeing my guys are going to go exactly there behind this bush or right. you know into into that building or or whatever. Yeah, I played uh, through the whole campaign. You know, and uh, I had to crank it down to easy at times because it was hard for me at times. But I, I you know, I, World War Two is a great period. I really, I really, I've been reading about. It. I'm still reading about. It. I'm reading a book now about it. So you know, it was great to see it all come alive yeah. in, that, in that game. It's interesting. I can imagine maybe that it could have been a really big challenge for you guys to, you know, if you if you had made Age Four and made about World War Two. In the, just in the sense that, like, when you work in a franchise like that, you start to, you know, accumulate all these assumptions about, like, right. how things are going to work. Whereas Company Heroes had the benefit of being able to start totally from scratch right. and make the game exactly how it should work for World War I II. Doubt it. I doubt I, I question whether we would have ever done a World War Two Age 3, I mean, Age 4. I, I just don't know. Because we never really got too far. Because we were all trying to do new things then. We would actually yeah. started building our... Uh, a massive online mm-hmm. role-playing game. That's yeah. where the passion for the studio was at the time, and there was some other projects we had going on. And uh, I, I think we 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 had we'd reached the limit of the age possible. Where it should go, yeah. And it would have been a year hiatus, like several year hi- a game, let's say a, a game cycle or two hiatus before the passion. I think rose up again enough to really want to try and do that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's hard. I mean, you guys essentially made five RTS games, right? Like that's that's ensembles. Output, essentially. Well, Halo Wars, right? Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Um, Halo Wars, yeah. So, uh, and... Uh, Plus expansion packs. And yeah, I mean, well, sure. I mean, but, you know, it's sort of like flagship games. Um, and uh, I imagine that there must be people who are, you know, got some frustration that, the, you know, that was the, you know, the only thing that you guys were eventually... Yeah, well, we had other projects that got canceled one after another. We were doing other things. We had, There's a litany of projects that you know that ensemble never did never finished yeah they weren't they didn't get really far usually what happened was we were so ambitious and so over over featuring our products that we've had to cancel everything and put everybody on the game to get it finished any kind of time at all sure so there's a cannibalization that went on but i think we had some really good ideas near the end but they just you know didn't suit uh microsoft's plans I mean, I think that's a, that's a challenge for all big studios. Once they get past a certain size, that it's hard to take. It's hard to take a bet on something that you don't have a proven record with. But if you if you keep going down that path, eventually, it's kind of like that's the only game you'll ever be able to make, you know. And like, you know, it's it's just hard to it's hard to run a studio like that. Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't have any desire to run a studio. I mean, I'm yeah. happy to be just a guy who helps with the project, creative process, you know, whatever, and. Uh, I don't want to be a studio manager. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't. From my, my own point of view, I, I'm trying my hardest to make sure Mohawk stays small because I feel like you know, as you start getting bigger and bigger, you start you have to start making decisions like that. Yeah, and um, you'll find that you can't be involved anymore. You know, like we're. I work for Bonus XP now, and there's like 15 of us, and Dave Pottinger is the president and CEO, and he still does an incredible amount of programming and design, but he's also managing all the relationships. Yep does the accounting I think still you know he just everything it's you know it's a lot yeah I mean he's excited he's great he does a fantastic job but if we get much larger he's going to have to designate a lot of that right and decide what he really wants to be doing yeah so Ensemble got shut down in 2009 2009 um, and at that point 
you kind of went off and kind of just consulted. Yeah, I had I had some consulting. You know, people had contacted me, contacted me about working for them. You know, I said I can't. I'm a full time employee. That's not possible. But when I knew I was losing my job, we knew we were losing our job six months before it happened. Right. And uh, so I wrote to one of my friends. It was a he worked for Blue Byte, uh, Ubisoft studio in Germany. And I, you know, it's just an. I said I'm, I might be free. I mean, do you still have any interest? And he says absolutely. So we met. They were in Cincinnati doing some focus testing, focus group testing. I flew down and met them. And so we agreed that I would uh, work part-time for them. And so I started going to Germany. For, for most of the rest of 2009 and all 2010, I went to Germany for about 10 days, 10 or 12 days a month. Not every month, but most months. And uh, right. it was an adventure. You know, I didn't like flights and I didn't like being away from home. But being in Germany and meeting all these people and being immersed in another culture... Right. It was great. It's I mean, it was nice an adventure. Journey. It was really fun. You know, I, I we worked on a game called Settler Seven and a couple other things. And uh, I worked with people from all over Europe because it, it's uh, you had to speak English, but they were not all Germans. We had Swedes, right. Ukrainians, Italians, you know, Frenchmen. It was it was great. I, I stayed at a bed and breakfast. I was adopted by the people that ran a bed and breakfast. <laughs> you know, we became very very good friends. That's cool. They I got to travel around Germany on my weekend. I always spent a weekend there, so I do something for fun. Right. So it was a great experience, and uh, but then Brian Reynolds got in touch with me. You know, by then he's building Frontierville for right. uh, for Zynga, and he says Zynga needs more people with Sid Meier, from the Sid Meier School of Design. You know, and so I said, well, I'm only given. I got I, I had other clients, but right now I only had this one for half time. He said, well, I got some time. He said, well, we want we want that time. So I started. They had me work with the studio in L.A. for a while. I did some writing for Brian company and then uh, they asked me they said we want all your time in January I said well that works because my contract well the Germans were fine with me continuing but I didn't have to go to travel you know and, and I could travel in the United States a lot easier than there and Zing was offering me more money and I guess I was ready for something new I mean I thought it was kind of new to learn about this this whole Facebook uh, game style yeah so um, they asked me, eventually they asked me to move, to, not to move, but go down to Dallas and meet the guys in Dallas because they bought two studios in Dallas. Part of Ensemble Studios had formed right. studios and they bought two of them. So, so these yeah. were a lot of people you'd worked with yeah, before. Yeah, these are guys that I'd all work with. Yep. So they asked me to go down and look at what was called Zynga Dallas, which yep. was uh, Bonfire Entertainment. And um, and they were building a game and uh, they asked me to go see if I want to work with them. So I went down and spent a couple of days with those guys. They said they were happy to have me and I was happy to do that. So I ended up working with them for the next two years or so right. and we built Castleville for Zynga which was a inter- very cool experience I mean, yeah. you know, it wasn't the kind of game that I'm going to play myself but it was fun to learn about it and see it how it worked and to see a game you made making a million dollars a day in, <laughs> in payments was just staggering Yeah, uh, it was like a, a whole new world and then of course it kind of evaporated after a while it didn't hold up but that was a cool experience and then uh, they let us all go and they let all they let what 20% of their workforce go and right and so in 2013, in June, we were all let go. But I was gratified. My phone was ringing. I was getting emails, Facebook posts immediately. Is this you? And if you are you free? Would you like to talk? We'd like to talk to you. So yeah. I could have gone to work the day after if I'd wanted to. Sure. And uh, I decided that I'm by now, you know, I've already, I'm, I, I'm qualified for Medicare by now. You know, I'm not a young kid anymore. Do I want to keep working? And they, it, it, you know, they gave us this package, so I didn't have to go, you know, I could... I could sort of like keep working for three months without doing anything, a couple of months, whatever. Yep. And we had vacations planned, so I, did, I took the summer off. And I told people I'd get back to them in the fall. We, we had some conversations. And I turned down one full-time job. And then um, another group in Germany, P- 
people who I'd known the first time had gone to another studio. And so they contacted me and we started talking. So I agreed to do some work for them. So I ended up contracting with them. And then I contacted, by now I'm playing Dave Pottinger's bonus XP's games. Yep. And I'm like a friends and family play tester. I just play them and tell them what I think. Yep. And I told them, well, I'm working part time for these guys, and but I have more time. And since you're friends, we've had a long history together and you're trying to start up something. If there's something I can do for you, I'd be happy to do it for free, just as a friend, you know. And he says, "Well, we want you to. We'd like to have you do it, but we're going to pay you. We're paying other guys. We're yep. going to pay you too." So I ended up doing some contracting for them. It wasn't a lot, but um, so in 2000, I guess in 14, I went down there for a week just to just to be part of it for a week, and they they said, "Well, we'd like more of your time. You know, would you consider you know taking a job?" You know. I said, "Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of happy with this part-time stuff. You know, I work from home mostly." Mm-hmm. I have to go to Germany once in a while or something, but basically I'm happy. I like being able to take a four, three day weekend when I feel like it yep. and, and not having to report, you know, ask for permission or everything I want to do. And, you know, I'm getting older. And uh, so we, we worked out. I'm now an employee of Bonus XP. I work like half time, part time. Right. I think I, you know, I might, if I wanted to work more, I could, but I'm pretty happy with this situation. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it must be nice to be working with those guys again. And, uh, it is. I mean, they're, you know, Dave, Dave really. Pulled a, you know, he was the lead on Zynga, and a lot of people like work, on Castle. A lot of people like working for him, and uh, uh, so he, when that all fell apart, he got to pick. He had, I think, he had a stack of resumes on his desk, and he got to pick people he really cared about. Yeah. So there's, a, it's a good group. They're not all ex-colleagues. There's some young people there that I don't know that I didn't know. That it's fun. I mean, it's it's a it's a hoot. They make me laugh every day. They're and uh, they're passionate. They're very talented, and yeah. we're having fun. And I think I told I told my wife I'm going to keep. She said. If you're not going to work, I'm going to put you to work as a volunteer. My wife does all this volunteer work. She works long hours, very yep. hard. And I'm thinking, well, I can do that for nothing. Right? I can work with friends on projects <laughs> that I like and get paid a little bit. You know, sure. I'm Scottish enough that that sounds much more attractive. You know? <laughs> so I'm, I work. You know, I'm still engaged. Sure, and it's yeah. still fun. Yeah, and I'm glad you guys are involved with Stardock. It's kind of nice to be able to be going through this together. I don't know though. I just met them. I haven't really met. I just met a few of them, so they seem very enthusiastic. Yeah, so. well, they're they're all all about strategy games. I mean, there's there's no deviation, you know, about like they're they're full, fully into that. So yeah, so uh, I get to meet them. I get to, I'll get more of them tonight at dinner. I just uh, had a meeting with a few of them already. Yeah, well, you know, it's sad to see Ensemble break up, but it's you know it's. It's no surprise that was it five years later or whatever you know there's a, you know there's a whole bunch of little companies in the yeah. in in the in the area. Well, look at are, the they're all all trace the roots to there. I mean that's yeah, that's I just mean, how it works. You know, Robot is still yep. fifty people went to work for Robot. They're still in business, very successful. They just uh, ten cent just invested up took a portion yep. of the company. I mean the friends uh, 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 words with friends, friends who sold to Zynga for a lot of money. Those yep. guys and they've all restarted new studios. Both yep. those guys. And Bonfire became Zynga Dallas is now uh, uh, another company. I forgot their name. And uh, there's still some other little pieces that are yeah. Going. Well, it's very healthy. I mean, you know, you think of it in the sense of like there's probably a lot of um, creativity bottled up inside Ensemble that had a hard time expressing itself that was only able to probably express itself once the company did was forced to kind of disband and people could kind of follow their own their own paths. Yeah, I mean, I, I said, you know, right away, I mean, of course, I'm older and I've got, you know, maybe opportunities that some of those other guys didn't have, but I thought this is going to be an opportunity. We're going to make, the- I was content to work for Microsoft for the rest of my career. Sure. I mean, I enjoyed working for them. They seemed like I, I liked it. But 
that wasn't to be. So, you know, I'm not going to mope about this. I mean, I've had all these opportunities in my life. This is going to be another one. By God, we're going to do something fun. And so I got this German adventure to go in, and I got to work for Zynga. Now I'm working with Dave and Bonus XP and John Evanson and uh, Jason. And I'm having fun, you know. I mean, I, yeah. I have no complaints. I mean, I've been the luckiest guy in the game industry as far as I can tell. Yeah. The chances, the opportunities that come my way. Yeah. Well, I guess to sort of as a closing question, like what, what do you think is the – what is the thing that a career – you found the most rewarding about a, a career in games? Most rewarding – well, you know, there's the old expression that if you find something to do that you enjoy, you'll never work a day in your life. Mm-hmm. I think it's been true for me. I mean, I mean, there's been days when it's been work, but I mean, I've had a blast. I mean, I've been able to make games and famous, well-known games that might be around for a long, long time. I work with really smart, fun, interesting people. They're all most people I work with. I have to say, we're very ethical. We're upstanding people. There weren't many jerks I ever ran into. I, I can't. I've just been so lucky. You know, it's just. I mean, I, I years ago I said I'm. Before I get a real job, like I told you, I'm going to try games before I get a real job. So now right. 35 years have passed, I still <laughs> don't have it. a real job, and I've made it work. And, uh, you know, I'm, you know I've, it's been, I've been fortunate, really fortunate. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for, thanks for taking part. Uh, I think people will really, uh, really enjoy this. Uh, well, I hope so. I guess so. I don't know. It's been fun talking to you. It's been, <laughs> you brought back a lot of memories, you know. I mean, I don't think about this stuff. I'm thinking about, you know, what other things I'm going on in my life and, the future. I don't think about too much about the past. I mean, talking to the guys I work with now, they bring up these stories about age that I've forgotten. Sure, yeah. It's like yeah. talking to my youngest bro- my brothers about stuff we did as kids. I said, I don't remember that. <laughs> you know, it's cool. Like you know, it's not that long ago, but still, it's gone. If yeah. you don't, you don't bring it up again over and yeah. over again, you forget it. Well, you mentioned earlier the historical record, and that's that's part of the reasons I'm, I'm doing these podcasts. Like, I think it's it's nice to be able to get it get it down while people you know while people can still remember what happened. So. <laughs>